but you know, I don't want to. I don't want to kink shame Abigail Brand. I don't want to come down. On I the... do, especially with the eye socket <laughs> thing. Oh man, well, get your fingers out of like the eye socket. Taking it to a new level. Taking it to an exciting new level, as detailed in this month's Cosmopolitan. I have you explored your boyfriend? Was have you socketed that? <laughs> have you not socketed? It's what the kids are. Socketing into. is what all the hottest war criminals are up to these days. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Al Ewing, celebrated comics writer, currently the writer on X-Men Red, which spun out of his series Sword, more recently known for his critically acclaimed 50-issue run on Immortal Hulk, but generally known for writing a lot of really fucking awesome comics. Al, how are you today? Thank you for joining me. I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, things things are good. It's you know busy time at the moment, but uh, today was today is kind of like my day of rest. So well, that's nice. I've been kicking back, had a good dinner. So yeah, all good. <laughs> I imagine gearing up for the fall is always a t- because you come. It's always spinning out of an event, usually. The right? fall like, be a big... of the mutants. Oh. Uh, no, no. But whenever I'm talking to creators at big two places, it's the summer usually has like a big event. And then mm. figuring out your issues in like September, October, November is like, okay, so did we just change the whole status quo? What are we doing? You know, like it's, it becomes it becomes interesting. It's there's always something you're gearing up for and something you're in the middle of. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I mean how that plays out for me is that I've got usually a couple of deadlines on the go at like any one time and then other things kind of looming in the distance. Uh, and then sometimes somebody says, oh, we, you know, for various reasons we could use. Very occasionally this happens and it happens this week, but it was like, you know, we could use this particular plate to be spun right now. Right. Can you drop everything else and do that? And, you know, that kind of, that's fair. One example I would imagine is the 11th issue of Sword. I would think that the Abigail brand reveal was like a plate that could be dropped at any moment, right? And it was like, okay, we're coming up on the big relaunch. Was that when it's like, deploy? Well, I knew from, oh, probably before the Hellfire Gala that like... No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you when I knew Brand was going to throw Garrick out there. Look, <laughs> it was very soon after I wrote that conversation between her and Magneto, where Magneto says, "Just watch yourself." Mm-hmm. In five, after we've had a whole issue discussing murder, and after we've had Abigail Brand commit a load of war crimes, murders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, murders like unilateral murders, you know, unsanctioned. Mm-hmm. You know, that if the court counsel would have found out that she had done, yeah, you know, questions would be asked in the house. You know, questions would be asked because, like, hang on, you've just killed a bunch of people. Yeah, the thing that's interesting about her 
and Hank and their sort of parallel trajectory at the moment is that they're doing very similar things yeah. with very similar worldviews, but she's very competent at her murders and war crimes in a way that yeah. he is not. Actually, the Gyrick thing, I had forgotten, but I always mention the two notorious bad predictions I've made on this show. Mm. And one was like two weeks before Hickman announced he was leaving. I was like, Hickman's not going anywhere. <laughs> the other one was like a week before Trial of Magneto 5 came out. I was like, I don't see any reason to ever bring Thunderbird back. And I don't think they would because he's more interesting dead and yada, yada, yada. Now, more fool me because I have loved everything that's happened with John Proudstar since his return. But the third one that I had forgotten about is in the Valerie Cooper episode that I did with Patrick Sullivan. We actually talk about Abigail and we call her Space Val Cooper, which is why we assume uh. that like Val hasn't been seen because Gyrick has been bantering with Abigail for a while now instead. And then I was like, you know, it's crazy that no one's ever killed Henry Peter Gyrick. I heard that. And then I was like, but he's just too fun. So, you know, I'm sure yeah, I'm sure they'll keep him around. And then fun? about a week later, he was out the airlock. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes the fun has to stop. Sometimes the fun. Has exactly, to stop. <laughs> exactly. And he's been at it for 40 years. So at a certain point, someone was going to get sick of it. I mean, he's as far as I remember. And, you know, this is kind of like, you know, behind the curtain. As far as I know, he's been I'm pretty sure he's been dead before. I seem to remember that Scourge killed him. I um, might be misremembering. That might have been something else like uh, Justin Sitwell. Or... When it's outside of X, it's kind of in one ear out the other for me sometimes. One of these other dudes with crew cuts and glasses. <laughs> and I, I like Justin Sitwell. I like him a lot. But I'm, mm -hmm. he's definitely in some sort of death-like state right now. Those bureaucrat characters are always useful for apparent deaths or you know like you can blow them up in a plane and then they come back but this was pretty uh this was pretty final her laura roslin moment shooting him out into the cold depths of space there are ways for him to come back well there's always ways for anybody to come back i've thought of a couple but it's like he's not going to be taking he's not going to be taking an egg he's not going to be like right. um, <laughs> he's not going to be taking the quick way right you know he's going to have to go through some shenanigans and convolutions if he wants to come back that's the fun thing about death in comics is it always oh. provides an avenue for story. I mean, the Krakoa era has really yeah. underlined that. So we are here to talk about Abigail Brand. And I also want to talk sort of generally about S.W.O.R.D. and X-Men Red, which I loved and am loving. Cool. Good. This episode will have maybe a spoiler here and there. Listeners for X-Men Red number three, which just came out this week. So... Word to the wise on that. But first, Al, I'd love to hear a little bit about your origin story with the X-Men, your history with this franchise, how you came to love it, and then a little bit about you coming into the X office, which is always interesting because you yeah. came in second wave. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that story was kind of, I was sort of keeping it a big secret. I think Jordan talked about it in an X-Men Monday recently, <laughs> so I'm feeling a bit more free to chat, chat about it. Well, it was the Moira story initially, the Moira stuff. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of when I first came across the X-Men, it was when I first came across Marvel in general, which was Secret Wars, the original. Mm. What they did in the UK was that you had your you had your comics, which were things like I mean, I started on you know you had these human comics, which were like thirty-two, you know, one-page strips mm -hmm. featuring the same characters every week, and it was. You know, very much kind of 
like the Beano, like the Beano, like the Dandy, that kind of thing. And then you had adventure scripts, which were more like three pages, five pages, again, recurring characters, you know, multiple stories in, a, in an issue. And you kind of graduated to those. And then, you know, you were expected to put away childish things. Right. <laughs> and give up comics altogether and, you know, read a proper book. And that was, you know, out of, out of shame. You'd be sort of shamed for your terrible juvenile reading preferences until you quit them. But like uh, American comics, um, you couldn't really get them when I was growing up. You could. I'm a little bit younger than Kieran. I heard him talk about this. Right. I'm a couple of years younger than he is. So I, I think I kind of, I was in at the tail end of the comics as ballast on ships era. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is one of those things that I think people don't get now is how difficult it was because now you can do it digitally. There's all kinds of ways. And there's also just a more robust yeah. marketplace. If you were very lucky, you could get an American comic. Um, I remember picking up some Walt Simonson, Simonson Thors. Uh, those were like 40p, 40p a copy. You'd find them occasionally news agents. And then, you know, you'd, you'd go back. Because we didn't have like Wednesdays or like monthly. Right. You know, you'd come back in like a couple of months later and there'd be another one. And this would be like, you'd have missed an issue, but it's fine because it's the mm -hmm. Jim Shooter era. Every comic is somebody's first. You can pick it up. Yeah, they're always going to explain to you what's going on at the beginning of the yeah. issue. Yeah, and I had Peter David Holt that way as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, or John Bernard Milgram Holt to start with. But what we did have the full story of, you know, week by week, the way we liked it and expected it, was reprints of Marvel Comics, there was a Spider-Man weekly comic that kind of chopped that up into chunks. Mm -hmm. That's where Captain Britain was for a while, yeah. was like yeah. as a backup. And then that's funny because, we, you know, the flip side is the Marvel UK stuff you really couldn't get here at all yeah, until no. very recently. I mean, the more Captain Britain stuff, I have read it because I'm an obsessive, but most American readers had not been able to read it until pretty recently unless they'd found yeah, it yeah, when rare it, collections. Yeah, yeah, when it finally got... Collected. No, it was. I mean, that was that was slightly before my time. But it was the same. If you look at the covers, and it's like all of the text on the cover is this, you know, big capital upon and it's blocks of color. Mm -hmm. And you know, nobody who hasn't seen one of these UK reprint comics knows what I'm talking about. And everybody who has seen, like, I've seen them, and they're yeah, they're a curious relic of a specific moment. Yeah, it's like lots of like mid eighties design choices, uh, graphic design choices, you know, at work on those on those comics, and and Secret Wars, the reprints was one of those. And I kind of I got in with like issue one at times. So it's like, oh yeah, great new comic. It's full of all these superheroes because mm -hmm. I I heard of the Hulk, I'd heard of Spider Man, you know, I'd heard of Batman. These were all like other kinds as far as I was concerned. But like, so you know, I picked this thing up and it's got all of the superheroes in it. And, yeah, and the issue one, they use they use the the Mike Zach cover with all of them like coming at you. Right. Yeah. And like issue two is you know a British artist. I wish I could remember who. I don't think John Higgins, but it was somebody. And like I remember, like on the cover, Wolverine's got his claws out, and they're curved. They're curved around. <laughs> they do a right angle. That's fun. And I remember looking at this cover and thinking, how do they go back in? How, how... <laughs> and that was like my first introduction to like. The strangeness of Wolverine's anatomy. Yeah, because I was going to say, how do they come out in the first place? You know, yeah, how do like, they come out? Like... How do they, you know, yeah. 
But, you know, you kind of open up that Secret Wars 1, and it's all of the superheroes. You know, Spider-Man is there. There's a bunch of other people. And thank God, the first thing they all do is they stand in a line, and they say all their own names. <laughs> and, like, they, they don't do this. They don't do this, like, as a group. They don't get in the huddle and go, like, okay, right, round the circle. Who are we all? No, it's the shooter philosophy as written yeah. by Jim Shooter, and he literally just gives it to you, yeah. Oh, he's a... Um, there are so many, like, ticks that you notice now. Like, everything in Secret Wars is, like, the size of 200 pentagons. Yes. <laughs> Captain America's all like, we're going to have a meeting on the uh, 256th floor of this building out of 2,000. And, you know, all of you, you can find a way there. It's easy. It's, like, all of this stuff that's being, like, oh, yeah, it's the size of 2 billion Wrigley Fields. <laughs> but everybody meet in the purple room. Sure. That we found. Everybody meet in the purple room. You want yeah. Nobody get lost. Uh, so, like, the sense of scale is kind of nebulous from the start. But to get back to the X-Men, you know, I, I've i never met any of them. I don't know who the guy with the claws is. I barely know who Captain America is. It's like, yeah, it's Spider-Man and his 20 amazing friends, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. It's like, you know. Well, and that's how they sold it. I mean, you know, it yeah, was like, yeah. here he is in the middle, and then there's all these other people around. Right. Backup stories in those other issues because it had to be an anthology. Mm-hmm. We weren't going to sit still for like a. They'd have run out of reprint material. In 12 <laughs> issues. That's that's like twelve weeks and it's gone. B. You know, British kids, we're not going to sit still for just like one comic in a comic. You know, that's a ripper. Yeah, we've got to have our anthologies. Exactly. So backup, Alpha Flight, interesting, and the uh, J.M. Demetrius Iceman. Oh, which is great and so weird. Yeah, yeah, that was a Dark Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> the way they chopped it up, that episode where Iceman is having that bruise mm-hmm. and like he tells Hercules that he loves it. Yeah. Was like that was like a whole episode. That's hilarious. It was just like, oh yeah. The Dark Marge saga. Oh yeah, that, that crazy episode <laughs> of Iceman where he, you know, it was just a bunch of nonsense for a week. And it was like, no, that's not how that was just the opening that was just the opening bit. And then Oblivion shows up. That was the end of the thing. You know, you turn the page and there's yeah. a go with the tablecloth for a face. And it's like, next week. Uh. <laughs> Something. So, yeah, well, you don't know what. <sighs> That's so funny. So that was it. So I was seeing like Professor X, you know, in his wheelchair to start with. And then somebody remembered that he could walk. And suddenly it's like, oh, my X-Men. I was just, you know, it's never, never mind. I was feeling nostalgic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think he says something like, you know, Village of Yonder was reading my mind. And he put me in my wheelchair because that's such a, a, an image for me. And, you know, I mean, these days it would be like, yeah, you know, sometimes I have to use the wheelchair, you assholes. Right. But, you know, at the time it was like, we need an explanation for this. Oh, my God. But, like, yeah, those meeting them that way for the first time, there was a panel in. What for me was like issue four, which was the big, the issue where Spider-Man fought the X-Men. Mm-hmm. And that was like very early on if you're in America, but it, you know, it took a while to get there. I've never actually read through these like anthology reprints before. I've seen them, but I've never like sat down and looked through consistently over like the course of multiple issues. But it sounds like a really fascinating, because I'm thinking about it and like the way, I don't have to tell you this, but like mm. the pacing of a single issue of a comic is so specific. It's like an episode Mm. of television. It would be like cutting a 45 minute episode of TV into like 10 minute serial chunks. Whereas if you look at an old serial, they're structured as 10 minute beginning, middle, end on purpose. 
So that's just interesting. I mean, I, I guess it makes sense because you have things like 2000 AD. I mean, like it mm. is the format that British readers were used to, but it sounds crazy. <laughs> well, I've written for 2000 AD. I still... Yeah, you wrote Judge Dredd for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. I still dip back into it. I've written the last three pre comic book day Judge Dredds. And it's, yeah, you know, you get six pages. You write for six pages. Right. Whereas this was much more... These are things that are written for 25 and then yeah. cut into fives, which would be crazy yeah, yeah. to read. Like five, five or ten, it's, it's really but a, a really bizarre way to meet the X-Men. <laughs> but there was, in this fight between Spider-Man and the X-Men, which, you know, obviously at the time, I was like, who are these weirdos? Right. That Spider-Man is fighting. Which was the attitude that all of the heroes had. You know, Jim Shooter was no fool. He was like... Oh man, yeah, everybody should treat the X-Men as just these weirdos. Yeah. Because like if this is somebody's first comic, they're gonna know who I don't know, actually this was the mid-80s, so they'd have probably known who the X-Men are, not anybody else was. But like um yeah, if this is somebody's first comic, then yeah, let's introduce the X-Men as these weirdos who none of the other heroes trust, and that'll sort of get along in this very brief way that kind of and there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations in Secret Wars about the whole human mutant thing. There's right a lot to of explain it to new people. Yeah, yeah, a lot of arguments between Wolverine and Captain America. A lot of lot, the first time, and this is me being introduced to both of these people. Mm-hmm. And like Captain America is a guy dressed as the American flag. It's Wolverine. Wolverine is a guy going like, "What have you done for my people? I used to have some respect for you, but you're you know, right, fucky buddy." There's one panel where Spider-Man webs Colossus in the face, and Colossus is reaching his arms up. And for the listeners at home, I am now reaching my hands up to my face. Yes, he's doing the gesture. The flames on the side of my face thing. You know, yes. The clutching in it. So I saw, and I saw that panel, and I thought, right, Colossus, he's got psychic powers. <laughs> if, uh, quite go. honestly, he'd be the funniest telepath around because he's not that bright. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, God love him, but it would be <laughs> I mean, trying to imagine. Yeah. He's going to make a reappearance in this episode, I feel. I think he's going to become important as we Right, right. But, like, yeah, God, I spent two weeks thinking Colossus had telepathic powers. And like, That's so funny. And I, I knew nothing else about him, you know, and I, you know, not until he sat down. And then that wonderful Jim Street away went, like, I'm from Russia. Right. I've been, you know, I've been going out with this girl, Kitty, who went, well, yeah, right. she's just somebody, she's just a name. And she's, and she's not in the story because she doesn't yeah. come with him. That's, I mean, they, that's why they break up because he meets yeah. Zaji. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I'm just remembering all of the great moments of Secret Wars now. <laughs> and that reprint comic immediately followed up Secret Wars with Secret Wars 2. Oh, wow. So now imagine Secret Wars 2, Jim Shooter's great American novel about consumerism and desire. It's certainly a novel. I don't know if I'd call it great. I mean, <laughs> I feel, I think it's, I think it's like. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Every sure. time I come back to it, every time I come back to it, and I come back to it a lot. You are um, the only person I know on Earth who frequently revisits Secret Wars 2, and I love that for you, but it's... It's for work, but it's like... <laughs> every time I come back to it, I, I find an, another detail, another kind of weird little thing 
I don't know. I can't remember. Like, I mean, the Beyonder like working through his gender in like three panels. Yeah, the Beyonder in general is such an yeah. odd. I mean, I'm excited to see what is to become of him and <laughs> stuff coming up because yes. that character feels like a character where whatever Shooter was doing with him never quite happened, you know? I but yet we been, got like a million issues with him in them. People have been trying to make sense of him for, for like... Ever since. Literally 40 years. <laughs> Just people have been like trying to pick this apart. It's, and it's like every decade comes back to the Beyonder. And like right, like someone's like, this of... time we're going to explain the Beyonder. And it's like, yeah, this time we? we're going to work out what the... I mean, Hickman took a shot at it, and that was fun, but... I'm building on that. I'm building on that ground. I mean, I don't want to get too... Well, you can't give too much away. Little, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a little spoilery. Yeah. But I've definitely been looking at all of the old kind of Beyonder... Mm-hmm. Flash Beyonder's plural appearances and kind of... But it's just kind of fascinating going back to like, um, and it's about as far away from like X stuff, unless we suddenly segue into the New Mutants, it's like as far away from X stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, yeah. he certainly did a number on the New Mutants, yeah. and then he and Rachel have that whole fight that leads to her falling out with the X-Men. Yeah, So like... there is that plot that just doesn't really go anywhere because Claremont's Phoenix mini didn't happen. Mm. That's another one where like people have been trying to make that story make sense for like, the Rachel that, stuff. <laughs> those were those were issues I picked up at the at the news agent that came in on ships. So I remember like um, Rachel just exiting the book abruptly, yeah, and then just never coming yeah, back. And then, and then you know, <laughs> miss an issue. I feel like I was there for that. I mean, I went back and I kind of read through this period, and I was astonished at the amount of issues I'd missed because you know I remember the death of Harry Lightman very clearly, but like. Mm-hmm. That was the only issue of that fight that I kind of um, right. I feel like I really caught. Yeah, well, because um, it's like three or four issues. I want to say that. Yeah, yeah, that's, it goes on for a while. It would go on even longer in a reprint. Not that I, I'm not saying that you got what. I mean, reprint, would, I'm thinking of how long it would be. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, to segue it to the X Men, honestly, yeah. it does feel like you have been entrusted in a broader sense with Marvel Cosmic and with that setting to some extent. And so it makes a lot of sense that you made your big entry in the Krakoa era with the Marvel Cosmic X-Men book, Sword, which was very much something different from, I think, what X-Men readers expect necessarily, you know? How did that all come about? Jordan has talked about how initially the plan was to bring you in for the Moira McTaggart book mm-hmm. that is now infamous because they teased it and then we were all waiting for it and then it never came. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, it, it was, I, I did have an idea for that. Uh, it was, the sword book was kind of going to be like in addition to that. That's cool. Okay, so you were going to do both. Yeah, basically how it went was I kind of made myself like the cosmic guy because I was sort of taking over Guardians. Mm-hmm. And my one, my one big idea for the audience going in, and, you know, things suggest themselves as you work, but, like, my idea going in was to, like, cohere space. I wanted space to feel like a kind of Game of Thrones thing. I wanted it to feel like knock-on effects all the time and, like, dominoes. Yeah. But, like, if something huge happened with the Kree, it would, like, affect the scrolls. And then, and, you know, Empire was, Empire kind of became, like, kind of, a chance to sort of test that out. 
Yeah, and I think it worked. Certainly the new status quo for Wiccan and Hulkling has been very popular. People really like that space emperor stuff. People like those, in my experience, people like those two to have, you know, a good time. Yeah, um, they like the, oh, yeah. So if people they're not, prefer those to be happy. Uh, yeah, if they're not happy, yeah. neither are their fans is, yeah. my, is my sense. But Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that if I were to ever break them up, then I wouldn't want to take any limousine rides in Dealey Plaza. Yeah, but I wouldn't. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> I would avoid that, personally. But I do think that part of what helped anchor that new status quo was the fact that your stuff, honestly, to me, is the first time, and it's interesting that you say this is what you set out to do, because mission accomplished, mm. but the idea that... Marvel Cosmic is like a complex political world yeah. that, where these empires interact with each other. We've seen Kree Skrull stuff, obviously, since way back in the day. But something that S.W.O.R.D. did particularly well through the character of Abigail Brand by having her data pages with her like private mm. DNA lock diary and all of that stuff is underlying sort of like the real politique of space. Yeah which helps me ground myself in cuz I've always, I've just never been a Marvel Cosmic reader particularly. I read no, some of the no. Infinity Watch stuff in the 90s, but like purely because I thought Gamera and Moondragon were cool cuz yeah. you know, it, you just need a cool lady yeah. in a book and I'll check it out for at least a few issues, but it's always felt sort of like discrete threats that just show up to deal with different yeah. people like to the point where the Shi'ar exist in the first place because Claremont was told, don't confuse people with the Kree and the Skrulls. Those are Fantastic Four things, like make up a new, make up new aliens. Yeah. So it was like, okay. And so like, what's the Shi'ar's relationship with the Kree? I have no idea. And so these are things that it makes sense to start building out, you know? I feel like, uh, cause I mean, at, at the time I was doing Guardians, I'm not sure there was that much other like majorly space related stuff. Not really that I can think of. I mean, Captain Marvel is always Captain kind Marvel. of in space. Captain but Marvel that... is very pre-connected because of, you know, who she is. Right. But, like, um, I mean, the thing is now I'm sort of I'm sort of off Guardians, so I'm kind of seeing, like, the ball I started rolling. I'm sort of watching mm -hmm. how it trundles without me. But I am still on X-Men Red. Yeah, which is definitely still a very cosmic. Yeah, it's a very, it's a space-oriented book. And also, you know, being in the X office, I have an eye on the Shi'ar. Right. But it's like, you know, I'm kind of talking to, to Steve going like, okay, so how does, and I'm kind of getting, I'm getting the news from him. I'm getting the sort of tips on like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, you know, I've been able to like tie into kind of practice the other side of the defense, I guess. And Steve is doing more with the Shi'ar than anybody has. Oh, yeah, he's, anybody he's doing has. great stuff. I've had a couple of conversations for like X-Men Red related stuff on like, which, you know, are still in spoiler territory and, you know, you'll see that coming up, but like, it's basically me going like, okay, how can I, how can I not step on your toes? How can I fit in? Right. Uh, and basically we came up with a sort of fun way that I could kind of ping pong off his all ongoing plot mm -hmm. without, you know, without disrupting it, without kind of, um, but also provide a little jigsaw piece for fans who are reading both. Oh, absolutely. Uh, which you would hope is most of them, but you know. 
I think most people at this point are reading pretty much the whole lot, if they're like invested. For the most part, I think people are reading everything because the story is so collaborative that it does feel like batons are being passed all around, right? And you want to see where things land. Yeah, we're always talking to each other. It's like we're always kind of, if, there, if there's a big thing, we're always sort of running it past one another and like smaller things we try to kind of keep each other in the loop you know in the sort of relevant sections but you know we've got the whole it's a very talkative it's a very talkative place it's a very good writer's room it sounds like a very fruitful environment a very collaborative fun environment and it does seem like what makes the most sense is that specific people have like domains essentially like where they're like if someone wants to do something on Araco, i imagine they run it by you if someone wants to do something in the other world i imagine not like can i do this but just like here's a heads up does this make sense you know i definitely checked with tina if i wanted to do like other world stuff i feel like Araco stuff generally gets mentioned like chatted over in the sort of general space i did because i knew i was gonna be doing x-men red and we're kind of jumping around in time here. Yeah, well, we'll go back in a second. We're just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You listen to this show. It's a meandering kind yeah, of show. Yeah, yeah. We, we always it, get it where we need places. to go. Yeah. The X-Men Red kind of... Because I knew I was doing that Mars book, I kind of... I remember I looked through all of the mentions of Araco and history of Araco and, you know, those issues that, that John did and also any, you know, any kind of captions, any sort of... And I tried to put together like a comprehensive timeline history of mm. like what we knew. Like the war in Ammonth and all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that I could kind of go back. And I was also trying to sort of, I guess, move it because I could see, I could see a danger ahead on the road, which was that I didn't want Araco to become a one-note society. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be monolithic. And I could kind of see a sort of a version of events where anytime they popped up, they were kind of like... Fighting? Yeah, any every where they all took like Iska, I guess. Yes. Because Iska is really, is really gung-ho. Mm-hmm. And she was the voice of Araka for like so long. Right, she's definitely the breakout. Yeah, she taught the readership how to see Araco. And what I see from a lot of readers is like, oh, this is very boring to me. I hope they get killed. Soon. <laughs> yeah, I, I see that a lot. I see like, oh, I hope Araco is destroyed. Soon. Well, and that's it's like, disappointing. Yeah, I, I, and, and it's like, okay, well, my job, <laughs> my job then is to make you stop having that reaction. Mm-hmm. And it's like, actually... Well, do you want this destroyed? Do you want this destroyed? How about this? What about this? And like, show them all these different things while also maintaining what had gone before. You know, I don't want to, I also don't want to do like a undulating and go like, right. oh, actually, you know. You want to keep the heart of the concept, but at the same yeah, yeah, time, yeah. I think there's a particular danger with Araco because the characters by virtue of the part of the world and the time period that they are from are mostly of arab or middle eastern or mediterranean or sub-saharan african descent yeah this is this is something i was very conscious you don't want it to be a warrior culture of mostly middle eastern black people who are warriors and that's 
their deal. That's it. You know, you don't want to do that. Yeah. I think that Iska can be that, right? Like, it's fine for there to be these individual characters, but she's got other stuff going on, too. One of the things that I've liked about Red is seeing the Great Ring having their meetings and realizing that, to us, these are all new characters, but they have history with each other going back thousands of years in some cases with characters like Iska who are Apocalypse-style ancients. Yeah, no, so many in the record. There's all kinds of stuff. I mean, one thing I thought was really cool in 3 was the implication of this complicated relationship between Iska and Tarn that we don't know anything about. Yeah, that was almost accidental because, like... I wrote like that. What I wrote it was like Iska being like really angry and really upset, and like you know, Stefano obviously knocks it out of the park. Yeah, oh, it's great. He's crying. She's really upset. And I'm like, she cries. Yeah. And I'm like, oh wow. Uh, and it kind of occurred to me. It's like that's a reaction like that's so big. There's mm-hmm. got to. There has to suddenly, be a longer story. There, it hit you me, know? and this is the great thing about the Marvel method where the issue grows as you create it. So I love what Stefano did with that moment because he just fused it with so much more than it was. Yeah. In the script. And like and it was just like, oh my God, she's watching somebody she's known for like maybe a thousand years die and she knows it's gonna happen and nobody else does, but she knows it will because of her And power. it's her fault, right? Like yeah. because she let Beto trick her. Yeah, and it's like... She's not used to being... Like, it's... She's saying, I can't lose. But the fact of the matter is, she is losing by winning in this moment. And that is something that would be psychologically very difficult for her. I mean, looking back over that scene in my mind now, you know, Roberto Roberto's really cruel in that moment. He's like, you know, when he says, you know, when he says that's how you lose without losing, it's like he's talking about himself, but like... No, yeah, she's t- that's how she loses without losing. She's yes, and you know it's like, and you know she's never going to get another moment. It's like, yeah, it's a really complicated relationship because Tom is a horrific, sadistic, monstrous, monster, yeah, asshole. But she betrayed the Iraqi has, to yeah, and it's, like because it's she has to him. win. So she like yeah. the, the thing about her is that she always kind of loses. She by has winning, no choice, right? right. So in that sense, like, when she betrayed them to Amanth, now she and Tarn are probably, you know, she has a kind of dark reputation herself. Yeah. And I imagine that she sees something of a kinship with him, no matter how terrible he might be, because they're both vile or tainted in that sense, right? So there's the whole... I don't know. It's like she'll have, she'll have, you know, hung around with him, like, a lot for for like for, hundreds for and hundreds of years yeah it's like you start thinking of it like the tunnels right where you know it's like oh well Cersei and Drew have known each other for like a thousand years mm-hmm. that's why I like whenever Apocalypse and Selene interact because it's just yeah. like they go yeah. way back and that's what the Archie externals have provided like there's now more characters like that where these are people who go that far back. And it's not something we can really conceive of in our brains, like the depth of a relationship that lasts that long. But what's interesting to me about it is, you know, as Apocalypse says in Excalibur 12, all mutants are externals now, right? Because of the Krakoan, as so long as the Krakoan resurrection process continues to exist. 
we're getting people like Sink who are like, uh, you know, he got there by the ball. But like, right. you know, we're, we're starting to see what that looks like. What somebody who's kind of been around for like 500 years. Mm-hmm. And the other example of a mutant who's around for like 500 is Moira. Yeah, exactly. Moira has been around for a thousand years. And guess what? It drove her pretty yeah. fucking crazy. We see what happened to her. <laughs> and it's like, so we've, we've got these two examples of like, um, you know, Sink in the main X-Men book is just incredibly chill. And, yeah. you know, a very, very cool, comfortable person. Well, he contrasts Moira in that way, right? Like, it's sort of to demonstrate. Yeah. Because Moira is a sympathetic villain in the sense that you understand why she's been driven to this place. But her choices are yeah. despicable. And so to have someone like Sink experience something similar. Yeah. Right down to the fact that no one but him can remember it. So it's like mm. her past lives where the timeline has been obliterated. And have him view it as an opportunity to start fresh or what, you know, like, and not be something monstrous. It underlines that she didn't need to be this way. This kind of brings us back to how I joined the X office. Yes. So let's get into the Moira book. Because we're talking about Moira. Yeah. Let's get into the Moira book. What was that going to be? What was the idea? How did that come about? What happened was I was pitching because I was back in the writer's room at that point. I'd been away. I'd been away for a while I think, when John was sort of starting. I feel like I heard a very, very early version when I was sort of on the way out of things. And then, you know, Hulk happened and people liked it. And I was back in the room again. And I got to hear kind of, you know, the, the latest version, the sort of alpha build let me take it to the room version. And I, I was, you know, very excited. Everybody was very excited. You know, I was, I was very excited about like the resurrection angle. Mm-hmm. You know, that was great. That was, it was at that retreat that I think it was either then or the one, the one after the very next one. But, but when it was like, when the X office had been built and like, you know, the first books were ready to roll out and it was kind of a going concern. That was like when, I think John kind of said, I can probably get you the exact fake seven email, but like, I'm going to do that actually. I'm going to, I'm going to actually put a date on this because my memory is so bad. Go for it. Because it was before, it was pre COVID. Yeah, here we go. There's one, there's one titled Hey Man. <laughs> so that's it. No, there we go. He sent, me an, he sent me an email with the subject line Hey Man. Yeah, basically, do you want to, do you want to do a more book? Um, and that was, Summer of 2019. So, and the part of the selling point was that there would be no, there'd be no rush on it. There'd be no like delivery timeline on it. Right, because it could happen whenever. Yeah, I think they were expecting, they're expecting me to kind of take my time on it and sort of slot it in when it was ready. And I was, I was sort of making these plans that it would be like, you know, ten issues, one right. life, but it would be mostly concerned with, and this is definitely something, John. Didn't they know me about who talked to me in person? And I can't for the life of me remember whether that was before or after. It must have been after. But he um he did say, Do you want me in the back matter? Do you want me to go into the sixth light? Mm. Do you want me to map that out? Because that's where I think the general understanding was That's the pivot, right? Like that's that was where she really point. changes. Yeah. 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 I was like, no, 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 we should leave that stuff surprised. <laughs> the sixth life is blank. And one day, one day I'll tell the story of that. 
of what that sex life was going to be. I was going to say, like, the reason Jordan brought it up was because the reason it didn't happen was once yeah. Hickman decided he was going to exit, the Inferno plot revealed certain things, and it just didn't make sense. Moira's not going anywhere. There is going to be. I imagine that there could still be a time for it to happen. I'm going to drop a prediction right now. I'm going to predict that there's going to be a 10-year anniversary on this of House of X, Pads of 10. Mm-hmm. And as one of the sort of goody extras in that, you'll see my email pitch when I go <laughs> deep into the 10 lives and I talk all about it. And it's, it's some of what we've talked about, about how like Morris lived for like, you know, over a thousand years and is no longer human in any recognizable sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she's become one of the most interesting characters in the entire Marvel Universe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's fascinating. One point of order, just to clarify for people. Yeah. People love to overanalyze everything Jordan says, and I, I understand the impulse yeah. because I do it too. But I do feel bad for him sometimes because I have to imagine he thinks through every sentence now <laughs> very meticulously. But he mentioned yeah. that Moira's heel turn in 10 Lives X Deaths was a decision that came later in the game. But to be clear, I'm pretty sure that what he meant by that was specifically her becoming like a robot person not that she's yeah. bad she was always going to be bad right i mean we kind of that was part of the discussion about it because house of x powers of 10 she's pretty damn sinister especially if you yeah. go back now i'm gonna dance some raindrops right now but like part of part of my pitch was like life six is the life that broke her heart mm-hmm. that was in the email pitch was like what is it what is it that makes life six why does she go from Okay, like life's one to three are her trying to be a human. Right. Life's four to six, the next batch of three, are her trying to be... Are her trying to be a mutant. Yeah, but more than that, her trying to be an expert. Yeah, like her trying to believe in the dream. And then suddenly, life seven, she's an assassin. She's going around mm-hmm. just like fixated on just murdering sentinel creators. Yeah. Like wherever she finds them, she devotes an entire life. After she's been told, she only gets ten. She devotes the seventh one. Purely to vengeance and murder, yeah. Vengeance and murder. And like and from then on, it's like she's a much colder figure. You know, she teams up with Magneto. I think it's like it's Magneto, or, and then it accelerates into Mother Akaba, which is the yeah, darkest yeah. Moira we see until now. And it's like this kind of ongoing and now we get to life ten. And you know, now the, now we know that like this wasn't a sort of a turn away from that path of darkness. It was kind of the combination of it. What I think is interesting is that the implication that I took from Inferno when Karima is explaining the timeline that she came from in the future, having her little Days of Future Past moment, is that the Krakoan project and Moira's efforts with Charles and Eric, Mm. well, and now (laughs) with Charles and Max, and I was so mystified by that, but the Anya beat in issue three, which I am obsessed with, and we can get to that later because I'm so thrilled with that choice. Well, that he that he can't bring her back. I, I was very worried mm. about that. That was my first thought at the end of Trial of Magneto was like, I really, really hope that they don't bring back Magneto's daughter because I think it's really essential that she. Can I mean, the, come back. yeah, yeah, both to him as a character and also just because of like what their story represents historically, like in terms of pogroms and stuff, like. Mm. I thought it would have been bad, and I'm glad that the instinct was, let's not do that. But more to the point, now I get why he would finally be calling himself Max, which is not something that I was like, that's 
that's odd. And he had been in this, like the the Immortal X Men like portrait variant, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. But in any case, the implication that I got was that like in Ten A, it worked right, and mm-hmm. Moira didn't flip yeah. on them. The big tragedy that Moira doesn't understand is that this time she got it right. And Karima going back and creating Orcus and accelerating the Nimrod timeline made her believe that she was in a failure state. And then she was like, well, fuck it then, phalanx time, was sort of how I saw it. I mean, I I don't think you need a Mora book to sort of look at that sixth life, what we know of it, and like kind of extrapolate from there. No, I think it could happen in another title. I'm not even sure that you need like a Moira title because I don't want to. I don't want to lock us into like needing a Moira title. No, I'm saying it could happen in another. Like it could happen in X Men. It could happen sure, in sure, any sure. number of things. But it also. I, I almost feel like the story has kind of enough. The story has been told. Has been told that you can look at that sixth life that ends. You know, with them being trapped in a a garden cell mm-hmm. and like stabbed by Wolverine and kind of. And also seeing the arrival of the phalanx and the kind of, and where it all leads. You know, once once you know that that's life six and that's that's the pivot point. It's all you really need to understand her existential despair, you know? Yeah, I mean, I could put a lot of icing on that cake. I could put some cherries on, I could put some toppers on, I could, you know, I could really decorate that cake. You have the cake, <laughs> you know, you, you have the cake. I mean, I'd still like to read the decorated cake, but I agree that I was captivated with or without the book itself. And I think that honestly, it ended up working a little better that we didn't get it. Yeah. Because I think that Inferno 4, that moment where she and Valerio did the most incredible face for that panel, but the panel where she's just like, Oh, that's the beauty of my cure. If you get them when they're young, they never know what they missed. My blood ran cold. Like that is one of the most terrifying lines I've ever read in a comic book. Mm. Mm. And the fact that we weren't sure until Inferno where she was coming from, I think helped make that really punch the reader in the face. What I want now, and I'm sure we'll get it, is just sort of more of an understanding of her master plan. I mean, the other line is one that Ben wrote, but forever is where I live. I tried to take you with me. You chose not to come is to me, like one of the best villain mission statements. It's very like apocalypse breaking on the shores of what, like sometimes a villain gets a really great monologue where you just get, Oh, here's what I'm about. Yeah. The phrase forever is where I live. I mean, the, the way that Jonathan reimagined the phalanx is to me one of the more brilliant innovations of Pox Pox. People don't talk about that as much because, frankly, I think people never understood the phalanx to begin (laughs) with. So a lot of people don't know that it's all a retcon, but it works so well and it it makes it more existentially terrifying. Oh, speaking of the phalanx, Mm -hmm. what are the odds that Candy Southern will appear in your Defender story? (laughs) Oh, man, I mean... Not good. I know. She wasn't on the cover that all the Defenders were on. And I was like, she led the yeah. Defenders. She should be on this variant cover just to... No, you're right. You're right. To be oh, a, a, a Southern International stockholder, but I am. We'll have to. We'll have to. Uh, we'll have to do that. Like, if there's a Defenders 3, we'll be right. Okay. I'll make that a mission. 
at least throw her on a cover. Yeah, you know, something. I mean, it's no, because you're entirely right. She should be on like a tarot card at least. Yeah. The thing we're doing with this Defenders is it is a team of people who haven't been. No, no, I know. Before, unless you can't tie it. I knew that if I didn't ask, I was going to get emails going, you didn't ask Al Ewing about Candy Southern. And I was like... No, you're 100% you're right, because she was leading the Defenders during my favorite era. My favorite as well. The Demetrius and Gillis. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Peter B. Peter B. Gillis. And again, that was one. I say I say it's my favorite issue of Defenders. That was another from the Ballast era. Oh, really? Came over on the deck of a ship. Mm-hmm. Because, you know... I, I went back to it and I read back to it and it's like, oh, wow, this is kind of, you know, this is good stuff, but it's it's a little hit and miss. There's this, there's a bunch of issues that, but like the one I got at the time is the one with it's got the American flag on it. It's got the defenders all charging in with the machine guns. And I think mm-hmm. it's Sinkovich on the cover, but it's got like yeah, guest starring Nick Fury, and it's all just this meditation on the stupidity of like violence as the heroic ideal and like well it, it sort of builds on gillis's themes from strike force muraturi which yeah, I think oh, is I one of the best comics well. like ever yeah <laughs> i love i love that book as well that took such a turn i remember like reading through the whole thing and by the end it's like and they don't even die right <laughs> it's like oh okay but like those that the first, first year where it's yeah like, the first gillis year of it like, is absolutely is brutal and I, I you know i tried to do that thing where because what's his name? The guy, the the, the guy with the braid, the, the yeah, 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 who just dies, you know, on the way to a mission. Because mm-hmm. up until then, people have people have died, like uh, Snapdragon dies, but like the you know spoilers for Strike Force Mercury. Here's the thing, guys, about Strike Force Mercury, which is it was a Marvel title, but it's like not in the Marvel universe. It's its own weird yeah. thing. It's a book where you, to enlist in the big war and defend Earth, you take this treatment that gives you superpowers, but it will kill you inevitably within two years. Uh. It's an idea that has been revisited a couple times by other creators in other comics. I mean, The Wicked and the Divine touches on that. And Ecstatics was also about the idea of like, superheroes as disposable, right? Mm. And his characters as disposable in a way that they're not typically in an ongoing comic. But in Strike Force Retreat, like characters will just die because it's like, oh, my time's up. And you're like, Wait, yeah, I liked but, that character. You can't just die. But this includes the point of view character mm-hmm. who like who is writing a novel about his experiences and is gonna and his idea is that like, oh, I'm gonna write the greatest novel and you know, I'll have long enough to do that. And of course he doesn't. But like right. up until up until that moment. He's narrating. It's it's all of the captions in his head. You somehow don't really believe that you you think that basically the comic will yeah. go until he exits and then he he just... dies mid caption. Yeah, it's so good. He dies in the middle of a wall narrating. And like, yeah, and like the last caption you get of him is like, oh oh shit, and then <laughs> and then he just fucking explodes. And and not only does he die on the way of the mission, he blows a hole in the ship. Like, yep. endangers everybody and it's like and this is sort of the only other death we've seen is somebody like at the end of a successful mission going like oh everybody stay back after they can die yeah and like it's this kind of heroic moment that like adds like a spice of kind of sadness and pathos to like a successful story and it's like yeah this will happen to you all and then the next time you see it happen it's just like bang middle of the bang. comic the narrator yeah the narrator the gone. narrator of the comic is just dead yeah. suddenly. I don't think there are any other captains after that. 
I don't believe there are. I would love to believe there are no other captions. I don't remember that, any, but it, it could be. But it's been a long on. time since I read it, but now I want to go read it again. Mm. This is not a Strike First Murituri podcast, but yeah, I much do recommend as we love that. it today. So the Moira book didn't end up happening, but you were in parallel development on Sword. Yes. What happened was I was at I was at C32 and the ex office were like, hey, we're having an extra. And this was the last C32. This was like, mm-hmm. it was like the last convention before COVID. Right. So, and you know, and, and we were there, you know, I was like bumping elbows. I was using a lot of hand sanitizer. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was like, uh, is this, did you hear? You know, but this was before it really blew up. This is before the lockdowns. You know, the smart money could see that was where it was maybe going. But like, you know, we were still in the denial phase. But yeah, there was there was an X meeting which I could go to like most of one day off because I had a flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while while we were there, everybody while I was there, you know, I was just there in case you know A to listen and B like, hey, maybe I can chat about the Morris stuff. But while we were there, everybody was talking of swords. I tell a lie. I was there for a whole day and a bit of a day because we went to dinner. Uh, but we were. Oh, they're for exosaurs. And that was where I found out, you know, we were talking about, okay, who's going to die? And it turned out to be Rockslide. Yes. And we were, we were like putting names and it kept circling back to Rockslide. And we were just like, oh man, like, what if he comes back and he's, he's wrong? You know, he's like, he's wrong slide. And, you know, and I finally, <laughs> but, you know, and, I, and since then I've been to kind of do a bit of stuff with wrong slide and, and we're finally going to get around to it. So, you know, you heard that, mm-hmm. you heard that here first. A little, little bit of an exclusive content, wrong sliders, wrong sliders back. Wrong well, that's exciting. Back. I mean, it's clear that a lot of the intricacies of other worlds and its relationship to mutants are going to be teased out in Knights of X, and it makes mm. sense that we would revisit that character soon, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's it's basically so, but during all of the talk of swords and like the the shape of the thing, uh, yeah, it, the, you know, the kind of sword station. Mm-hmm. popped up and you know not not wanting to just be sort of sitting on my thumbs this meeting i was like oh yeah well we could i feel like i kind of said it but i feel like somebody said it but like you know we could have a new sword but we could like we could have the sword station we could bring that back we could have it stuff with you and that was sort of put on the pile of like oh yeah maybe and then i kind of got into a thing where you know that percolated enough to kind of coalesce into a natural plan mm-hmm. that we'll do a sword book and so you know i was kind of coming to like the zoom x meetings to talk about the sword book and also the more book that you know was you know and, and we were i think the timeline we were thinking about was like okay i'll start working on this towards the end of hulk and like right because you were still moving toward the yeah, end yeah, of yeah, immortal yeah. hulk at yeah. that time i was still doing that I have to tell you, by the way, I have never in my life wanted to read a Hulk comic. And after reading everything you've done at X, I have gone and picked up all of Immortal Hulk. And I'm going to do oh, like wow. a straight okay. three. Everybody told me about the Jewish mysticism stuff in it. And I was excited about that. So I'm like. I mean, this is it's something I'm, <laughs> it's something I keep coming back to a lot. Well, I think it's why your cosmic stuff makes sense to me because I was actually just talking about this on Twitter the other day after the Axe promos dropped for the Mm. Jean Grey issue that Kieran is doing. 
all of Claremont's stuff with the Phoenix is all Kabbalah. I mean, mm-hmm. he explicitly refers yes. to her as Tifereth. Like he does the whole thing. So we could have a whole conversation about Defenders too. And it might have to be in the future because it would involve just dropping so many spoilers on you. You'll have to come back for a bonus where we do that. Yeah, yeah. There was a a synchronicity in that I found out about the Claremont stuff mm-hmm. after quite a long time after I'd made some plans, which you know at that point were locked in and couldn't be changed, mm-hmm. involving the Phoenix. And you know now this is just this is really teasing. This is like that. Well, it's been solicited that there's Phoenix stuff in. The yeah, 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 yeah. You've you've seen the cover, but it's. Mm-hmm. I'm, I keep flashing back to that. Oh, that guy. Uh, some, uh, someone, Cho, I think. Uh, Providi, I think it's them. But he he does a sketch about like uh, headlines for clickbait sites. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's it's one of those it's one of these TikTok sketches. So he's like playing the um, he's kind of playing the 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 article writer. He's also playing the editor, and it's like. Yeah, here we go. It's yep. He's someone show voice actor. He he does a lot of. He's great. Pro ZD. Yes, he's very funny. That's it. Pro ZD. That was the one. But he plays, you know, the clickbait writer. And he plays the editor. And the editor is just like going, "You got to tickle their balls, tickle them more." <laughs> and like every time I read like a CBR article or a screenrun article, I'm always I'm always hearing his voice going, "You got to tickle them more." Mm-hmm. Oh, that's absolutely. I was laughing because the screen rant piece about mm. um about the name drop of Ascani in Knights of X2. The headline refers to her as Cyclops's daughter. Not by name. It's not Rachel Summers. Mm. It's like Cyclops's daughter has a great new code name. And I was like that You won't is... believe. I realized for SEO that's better than Rachel yeah. Summers, but still, come on, yeah. it's a little disrespectful. I always refer to these articles as like, you won't believe, you know, they're gonna do it. You won't believe. <laughs> You'll never believe what happened. Yeah, the, yeah no. Exactly. Yeah. I was very proud, actually. I got, like, there was a Screen Rant clickbait article generated about this podcast, and that was oh how I God. knew that I had penetrated well, you've made it. culture. Yeah, no. Yeah. It was about a piece of fan art of Betsy and Conan that I commissioned from Valentine Smith. It was like, that as well. The perfect fan art of Captain Britain and Psylocke or whatever. It was like, and I was like, I've made it. I'm a screen rant clickbait item. No, solicits are annoying is the thing, and I'm sure you can't go into detail. But I mean, for for X Men Red, I write my own. Mm-hmm. I don't do that for other books. I don't. I don't do that for Defenders, and I don't do that for Venom. But for for some books, I write my own. So, and it's tricky because you've got to get them. You've got to get them right, and certainly for the Defenders covers. Yeah. Any any cover, I'm sort of talking back and forth with with Javier about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, what he what he came up with for that cover is just, and of course everybody was like, people are very dismissive about Galactus's mother. They are, yeah. Like you know, I I remember Stan Lee waxing fulsomely about Abraham Lincoln's mother, <laughs> and you know you'd have thought Galactus's mother would get the same respect, but you know it seems not. People are, but anytime somebody hears like Galactus's mother, they're all like, oh, this is the death of comics. I think that there's, I think there's a resistance that's, well, part of it without, you know, backseat driving anybody, I think that part of it is that the stuff with the Phoenix and Thor's mother didn't go over swimmingly with everybody. And so I think that when the clickbait headline is Galactus's mother is the Phoenix, 
people were like, oh, again? People, people got the wrong end of the stick. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I think people misunderstood. Right. I think people misunderstood what the clickbait meant. It's, it, Which is no, the point of the, clickbait, right? Is to try and get people to click it so that they can actually understand. But most people just read a headline and move on with their day. I mean, it'll all, when you read the issue, it'll all make sense and it's not going to step on anybody's toes. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. If you are currently writing Phoenix and like you're worried about this, <laughs> please, you know, to, to those like one or two listeners, please, please don't, you know, it's fine, Jason. I think part of it also is just that there are a lot of readers who just want gene to be the phoenix and are kind of tired of the phoenix oh, being a, a thing so we'll i'm not writing any gene books you know I can't yeah speak to no, that. no exactly i can't speak to that but so. i'm just saying i think that i think it's also just that the tease of the phoenix for x-men fans i think is is tough after the last yeah 15 I years mean, of stories <laughs> i guess i guess what i'll say is that i'm certainly coming at it from a place where i'm getting really into the sort of the, the mythological mm-hmm. side of the Phoenix, and that kind of Claremont side as well. You had them go into the White Hot Room in the first issue of Sword, which was yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I was like, because talk about stealing fire from the heavens, right? Like that yeah, this, is this Defenders book is almost an expansion of that moment. It's like I I want and I, you know I've got a record of this, but I want to I want to map Marvel Heaven. I want to get right into the and this is where we get into. And, you know, I've talked about this as well. This is where we get back into the Macabre, which is I want to go right up the middle pillar and, like... You want to ascend in the Merkaba and do the whole damn thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. they're it's doing. Like, that's what the six are doing is chariot mysticism. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it, except, like... Um, except Abigail's like, it's technology, because that's very Abigail of her. Well, we know from we know from Claremont <laughs> that, like, the White Hot Room, you know, the Phoenix is, like, connected very much to the... Tiferet. Yeah. You know, the central... The center of the Sephirot. I've been doing my reading, and it's like, you know, that is the hub around it, which it all kind of revolves with the connecting point. Between. Mm-hmm. And the Macron crystal is also that, and like, it's it's all very... People don't think of Claremont as like a mystical writer in the way that Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and people like that are often thought of yeah. that way. But Claremont's but stuff with the Phoenix in particular is very mystical and all of the stuff with Limbo and Limbo and the Phoenix sort of in opposition to each other to some extent, which I think comes through in Inferno because it's oh. about Ilyana's story and about the Phoenix animated Madeline and part of what's made Madeline lose it is having that power start to awaken in her. That, mm. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of good, as, as the world's have, preeminent Madeline Pryor obsessive, it's something I've thought about a lot. I should have thought of that because I've put, because I've got, you know, I love my, I love my clip-off. I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. She is a clipothic figure. Yeah, I've sort of put Limbo somewhere else on the tree. Mm, well, um, I'm happy to workshop with you. Anytime you want to yeah, sit down well, and talk about marble cosmology and the check my work. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, yeah, no, I mean, I'll, uh, yeah, once, once, you know, I'll do, I'll do that, that mini episode and, and talk it through because it was like, I mean, I only just found out about like the four trees, like the, yeah, because you've got the, you know, you've got one where like, yeah, so there's like the hub mm-hmm. and, you know, the kind of moving up the, it's like you get to the you get to the kind of midpoint of one and it's the beginning part of another. Yes. So, you know, this was this was like news I could have used about six months ago. 
and um, well, I've just only just found out about. But like you know, this is the thing: it's the trial never ends, kind of journey never ends. You kind of exactly you get into this stuff, and it's bottomless. Yeah, but the idea of the white hot room and of Gene gathering like the pieces of the fallen world and all of that—and I mean, I, I was saying on Twitter like my perception of Gene and the Phoenix, and you, you know, you don't need to comment, but I, I just do want to say it on the show in case I turn out to be super right or super wrong. <laughs> my interpretation is that the Gene of Earth six sixteen becomes the Phoenix, and the Phoenix is an omniversal constant, so it exists at all times and places. So it is Gene fundamentally, and I'm the only me that ever was is the same thing if you were to render it in Hebrew as I am what I am. Oh wow! And I always have been, you know, which is <laughs> that's a that's that's a mind blower. I become what I choose to become. I will be what I will be. I create whatever I create. I am the one that exists. I'm the only me that ever was. I mean, once you've read issue three of Defenders, um, we can get back to this because I don't know if I don't know if what I've written will like support that or not support it. But I feel like it could do both and also support a third thing. That's a a share a it's what God says to Moses in Exodus, yeah. if people yeah. are not familiar, not to take you to a, <laughs> not to take everybody to a place of Judaism on this podcast, I but know. I do it a lot. Biblical Hebrew doesn't have tenses, grammatically speaking. Oh. So it's a phrase that can be translated a lot of different ways. And one way that you could translate it is, I'm the only me that ever was, which is what Gene says to Storm in the Inferno. Yeah. And then Hickman used it again when she was resurrected on Krakoa when Aurora asked her, is it really you? Point is, to me, that's the way you ultimately fix Phoenix's connection to Gene is that the white Phoenix of the crown is Gene. The Phoenix force is Gene. So I don't know if that's yeah. what they're going to do, but... I mean, what I, what I will say is that hearing that that phrase could also be said that way has given me an idea... Um, that I might take to the room. Well, oh, please do. That kind of connects with some some thoughts that I can say. You know, I can't even I can't even hint at. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd be I'd be sent to the hole. No, so we'll we'll end that little we'll end that little side group there. But it has it has sparked some thoughts about some thoughts. So uh, expect more expect more uh, cavalry exploration in the future, probably. Well, I'm excited about that. To get us back on track, because I yeah, knew you and get, I could go on that for like get a back to that, year and a day. Zoom, so, sword, sword. Yeah, sword. And I get muddy about the exact time on this, but like, I'm pretty sure that the Zoom, I went to like, you know, the ex-Zoom meeting uh, where we were all in the room. And that was when Jonathan sort of took the vote slash dropped the bombshell of like, okay, we're going to stay in Krakow for a while. And like, that basically means the way I'm thinking about this is maybe we don't get a Moira book. Right. And I'm sorry about that, but you still got sword. And the thing is, it was a really, because he, he ran us through like the kind of, he ran us through what he was thinking in response to what the team was thinking. My instant reaction is like, you know, I'm, I'm just there for the first time that day and I've been told that my book is cancelled. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, that's a brilliant idea. Another thing that I feel like just for listeners, just to clarify, is like 
Hickman was excited that everybody wanted to see on Krakoa. It was not. Oh like yeah, yeah, no, big, no. This was like this it was, was not like, a bad thing. There's all these people who are like, oh, like Hickman's plan got derailed, and I don't think that's accurate. The way he was phrasing it was like, guys, we could go into the stratosphere. This could go long. We could go to space on this. Yeah, and I'm like, and my okay, my reaction was like, man, they're gonna fight you because this is too good an idea. <laughs> they're gonna fight you they're gonna like right, they're gonna, like you're gonna have to like and he was like no 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 I, I, you know you're being paranoid but like it was that good an idea i thought like okay well he's gonna have he's gonna have trouble putting this across he's gonna have to fight for it <laughs> but like you know i did not i did not you know hear him say yeah i don't think we could do the moral book and think oh no well i'm i, I just thought god damn it it's such a good idea what he's what he's what coming he's up do. with now. Yeah. yeah, what what this room is coming up with now is such a good idea. Like, man, we gotta do it. We gotta we gotta go with it. And like Sword became at that moment part of that new mm-hmm. fuel for that fire, part of that new kind of rocket fuel that was gonna like push Krakoa, keep Krakoa going, keep it moving, keep pushing. And then and then, you know, it became we had we started having back and forth about like what that would look like, which was when we talked about building the team. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan's big contribution to that, which was, and I guess I should, I'm I'm doing this from memory, and I have, you know, my memory at this point is like, you know, it's like Stanley at his worst. <laughs> I cannot put things in order. I cannot sort of remember exactly who said what. But like one thing that I know Jonathan said was that I need to have a bad guy. Uh-huh. Because I think the team I pitched was like it was missing Cortez. Mm. That's so funny because I feel like he's so key to the book. And... Yeah, I think one of many. In some ways he's responsible for like uh, Abigail's heel turn. Mm-hmm. But like the note Jonathan gave me, one of them was like, you've got to have a bad guy in the book because that's going to create so much drama and so much sort of juice. And also we're in a new era where enemies have to get along. Right. I mean, there's always something fun about having a villain on a team in this era where we have to let bygones be bygones. Right. Mm. And see the limits of that and the possibilities of that. And he, he basically mentioned Fabian Cordes and I was like, Oh, I vaguely heard of him. He's a dude from the nineties, <laughs> and the nineties, the nineties is a black spot for me. And I've been hauled over the coals on this. I'm with you on this. This is why. I, I mean, Anthony Alvaro always makes fun of me. He's like, you'd never know from listening to your podcast that the nineties, yeah. the most successful period of X Men ever existed. I'm like, yeah. I covered the early nineties a lot on this podcast. I've made enemies of, and I've, I've found this out that I've made enemies of cable fans by like saying that, like, I, I, I made mistakes saying publicly. When like cable arrived, I was pretty much gone. Mm. That was the moment, and it was more like it wasn't cable specifically. It was more like that era right. was where I started to feel like you know. And I I became like a, a little radical kid. I became like I was like reading the super soap when it was triangle numbers. I was you know doing all of the doing all the vertigo stuff. I was you know getting into the indie scenes, all of that stuff. But I kind of stepped away from Marvel. And funnily enough, around when I came back, which was like. Obviously, you know, I kind of came back for Black Panther, the big, the Marvel Knights stuff, the big stuff of the noughties, which was basically Black Panther. Mm-hmm. 
but this is the same time, of course. New X Men as well. Seeing New X Men, you know, seeing Grand Morrison's name in the X Men commercial, we're allowed to have that. Immediately, right back in around the same time, Cable and Deadpool happened. And, you know, this is a cable. Oh, I like this guy. I'm really into this guy. Oh, great. He's been through the wilderness. He's no longer <laughs> this cipher. So, you know. I think that there's kind of three phases of Cable a little bit. Yeah. Simonson's writing of Cable is very different from then the way Liefeld writes Cable, which is very different from then the way that Nisiesa writes Cable. I think that it's the Nisiesa characterization where the character kind of clicks into place, at least for me, which is also true of Deadpool. There are several X-Force characters that the version that I think people are conscious of now is the version that Nisiesa establishes. And certainly I enjoy Cable more now than I did when in the 90s it felt like you couldn't shake a stick without hitting Cable. You know what I mean? It's kind of like Wolverine that way, where I'm really enjoying Percy's Wolverine in part because I feel like peak Wolverine saturation has passed Mm -hmm. us by to some extent. And it's more fun to look at these characters and use these characters when they're not everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it was like... But so you were unfamiliar with Cortez because you weren't I a was, big 90s X-Men reader. I spent a weekend, and it pretty much was a solid weekend. I tried to do the same thing earlier this afternoon, read through all of Abigail's appearances, and I, you know... Mm-hmm. No, she's, she's 160 of them, which I was <laughs> shocked by. Let me tell you, I was shocked by it when I sat down to do this Cerebro character file mm. this week, and there aren't that many resources about her online either. Like the wiki pages about her are very out of date. They don't have the Krakoa stuff for the most part. She doesn't have a profile on uncannyxmen.net. Yeah. I often look to them for like, where should I start reading? Like they have those issue checklists that oh, are they're, fantastic. They're, so useful. they're the best in the biz, but they don't have one on her. So I was like truly lost in the wilderness. Like, where do I begin? And I just went to Travis Starnes and was like, okay, I guess I start with, I mean, I've read the Weed and men but like, where do I go after that? You know, and stuff like mm. that. She really has been just around and i guess it's because like nick fury or maria hill she's someone you can throw into a crossover to like give a few lines about the crisis that's going on she became that person who could beat nick fury that's something jonathan hickman talked to me about regarding abigail brown around when i pitched like her heel turn one of the things he said was like well be careful because she is the person who can come along and say the line right and, you know, you need somebody to be able to do that. I still think Valerie Cooper's due for a comeback. She's always... Well, this is it. We've got, we've got, we do have people who can do that. You know, there are people... You know, there are other characters out there who can do that. She does occupy a space in the archetypes. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, maybe, maybe the X-Men is lacking. Maybe Beast is in that space as well, but... But I think Beast is incompetent in a way that she's like, not to suggest at all times, but I think his, he's sometimes not big picture enough in his thinking, which is funny because he's always emphasizing that he's thinking about the big picture, but Mm. then he'll make decisions where it's like, actually, Hank, you're missing the forest for the trees here, right? Whereas I think Brand, I really liked in, I think in X-Men Monday, you quoted Karl Rove in 
discussing oh, yeah. brands yeah. sort of political philosophy. The new realities. Yeah, yeah, that like you create realities around you and then other people accept them. Going back to what you said about making Marvel Cosmic feel political and like, yeah. like a politically viable zone, Abigail directing Amelia Vogt to take core of the burning heart around to assassinate all of the potential leaders of the snarks that earth doesn't want. Here's the thing. That's what the U S has done. That's what the UK has done. That's what we do in these situations. Superpower countries do that all the time. And so for Abigail to just unilaterally go, I'm going to install as an arcs emperor puppet that I want yeah. is great. And the use of vote to do that. I thought it's funny for someone who was not a big 90s reader, the Acolytes are all kind of getting a new, except Unishone. Where is Unishone on the sword? Yeah, I mean, this is this is what happens when you don't put a, a 90s guy on the, <laughs> on the Acolytes. I'm like, she's got a psionic exoskeleton. She who, was, be... who was the big who was the big dinosaur? Was that Hemingway? Um, Mellencamp. Mellencamp. That was it. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was, he was fun. Man. He's there. But which, you know, I mean, presumably he's in the queue for an egg, but like, I would imagine he's quite far down the queue for an egg. As an Unishone head myself, I just like the Acolytes. I think they're like, to me, they're sort of the last great new villain group before yeah. Morrison does Cassandra Nova. Because most of the 90s villains don't really land, in my opinion. Yeah, my, my experience of the Acolytes is this sort of speed reading mm -hmm. I did on this weekend when I was like, so who is this Cortez guy? And I kind of, I became fascinated by it. The fun thing about Cortez is that he doesn't believe in any of it. And he sets yeah, the whole no. thing up just to win upstarts points by assassinating Magneto after getting close to him. Like he's completely a yeah. fraud, which is fun. He's appalling. I think that that comes across in the way that you write him. And I love Magneto pretending not to remember who he is. That's one of my favorite bits in Sword. <laughs> I mean, I did, I did see him as this kind of, because he has this ponytail, which is just like... yeah. You know, almost sums him up, but like he's he's this kind of Patrick Bateman style. He's very much like that sort of like in the nineties. He's a yuppie. Yeah, he's a yuppie, and also like the way that Skeety redesigned him as like a metrosexual kind of in that like very late nineties, early aughts way, where it was like straight men who actually wash their hair as as though it was like a there were all these trend pieces about it. <laughs> I mean, all of the upstarts characters, which like talk about a group that didn't quite land in terms of their plot significance, but they're all back now for the most part. On I mean, I don't. I guess we haven't seen Fitzroy or Sienna Blade. Before we skip away from Valeria's absolute mastery of fashion, all of those redesigns are astounding. Oh, wonderful! Like, do you want to slim down Wizkid's chair a little bit, having now consulted? Mm. But like, God, that that Cortez design with you know it's very you could see them on a camel yeah you could see any of them on a camel brand frenzy's redesign is i think the best she's ever looked mm. but so so coming back around to like jonathan suggested cortez how did the rest of the team come together uh i wanted well brand was always going to be there manifold was the other one because when i when i kind of fast forwards them at the end of Empire, those were the two that I had. Mm -hmm. um, and the rest were like vague silhouettes that Valerio threw down. Which, you know, you can kind of map, map who would... When we finally get around to the scene, you know, with like issue seven, 
where that actually happens. You can kind of map who they were, but at the time, they were nobody. They were just like blurry background people. But Manifold was the second I knew for a fact would be there because I was, you know, I was a huge fan of everything that had been done with him. And he'd never really been in an X-Men book, so it felt good to yeah, bring he him was, into he the was X-Men a stuff. And he was very connected to Gateway. And, mm-hmm. you know, he had all of these connections. But he'd been, he was like a Firestar in that he'd been mostly an He's Avengers. an Avengers character, yeah. Yeah. And, like, and then he'd become... And I had to sort of semi-navigate this because of the the timeline of Black Panther. Mm, right. While he was off in space. And we, you know, we didn't 100% know if he was like in the future, but it turned out not. But like, you know, he was off doing his thing on a long form story. And it was like, unfortunately, every long form story ha- has to happen between like, two issues of Avengers right? because of Marvel time. So I was like, okay, well, Manifold is available, but it's, and, and you know, and then, you know, I found out that Manifold had like a giant role to play in that Black Panther thing. So, you know, I, I was a little worried that I was stepping on toes, but I, I managed to kind of mention that in issue three, so that was fun. It helps that he can teleport. I mean, you know, yeah, he could be a lot of places, thing. you know? He is literally, he's literally somebody from the everywhere. You know, I like, right. I like coming up with that kind of nickname for the everywhere man. Yeah, that's good. His spotlight issue is one of my favorite issues of Sword, the one with the different artists. That is a thing. I keep doing this, and every time I do it, there's a wave of like, oh my God, they're already having all this problems. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 this is a thing that I do. On that was a choice, book, yeah. Every single book I'm on, you know, since home. But like, I did it in Valkyrie, I did it in Sword, I'm doing it in Red, issue four is that issue in Red. Mm. But in the first five of every new series I do, there's a jam issue, where I bring in three artists to tell a story from three perspectives. The only place I haven't done this is Venom, because Brian is a machine now. He's become a demon, a machine demon, and he is just, we're not sure when he's going to need a break. (laughs) We suspect never. Brian has been to like the training camp from Rocky Four and has come back <laughs> as this, this, you know, Ivan Drago type. I will do a hundred issues without a break. You know, we, we are having to keep up with him. He's like, he's a machine. But that, that is an example. That is the one example in recent times of a book where I have not done this and done the jam issue in the first five to give the original artist a break so we can, you know, work out work out how we're doing but people are always shocked and surprised and horrified well because they yeah, they assume that it's because of some kind of problem behind the scenes but yeah, like, yeah no yeah. i like and doing not, this i've done it no, so many fine. times yeah <laughs> you'd think people would expect it by now but no but yeah that was that was an example of that we had some you know we had a we had a wonderful time on that one but mm-hmm. it was like yeah manifold was was the second I, i'm trying to think i feel like Frenzy was next because what I knew about Frenzy was that A, she'd been in the comics of my childhood. Yeah, she's in the 80s stuff. Yeah, yeah. And B, she was a diplomat. She'd been. She was the the ambassador ambassador to the UN under Magneto. She was an ambassador. And I was like, okay, well, she can be. And we've got all these alien civilizations that like fight each other a lot. Mm -hmm. Great. She can do this form of diplomacy and ambassadorhood that involves like beating people up. 
Yeah, it was. I thought that was genius. Honestly, we only did that once, but like, uh, yeah, but just it's existing in the background. You know, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, it's a good, yeah. it's a good place to put her. It also, if you were going to have Magneto in the role where he and Abigail are kind of directing Sword together at the beginning, yeah, Magneto was one of the last four. Cargill is the most loyal acolyte and checking in with their relationship in that first issue, you know, it was interesting to me, like the idea that now through her time with the X-Men and other things that have happened to her, she has a more nuanced idea of what it means to follow someone. Yeah. She's, she's sort of moved on. And I'm interested to see how her relationship with brand will shake out in a similar way. We're definitely seeing the cracks yeah. start to emerge. X-Men read so far, Abigail thinks that she is really just like nailing it because throughout the 11 issues of S.W.O.R.D. she did. But the fact that Sunspot and Storm and Magneto are all immediately just like, and Manifold, just like don't buy her shit. And we see in three that Cable doesn't either. Like, I think it's funny to see that so many of them have clocked what she's actually up to. They don't realize she's with Orcus, but they understand that something in the water is not clean, and she seems to underestimate their mm. ability to read her. We kind of were, because I was reading today, I mean, rereading, obviously, you know, it's it's far from the first time I've been over these old issues, but I was rereading the Joss Whedon stuff. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we're definitely kind of calling back a little bit. Well, she debuts as someone helping to create a cure for mutants. I mean, there is a... Yeah. Her first like major appearance, her first major kind of speaking role is justifying the years-long torture of an expert mm-hmm. for some nebulous greater good that involves, you know, aiding and comforting this planet of sadists. She's appeasing an interplanetary dictator. Yeah. But also the other thing about that, that early Whedon run. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there, you know, that there's a lot. But, like, part of it is that her plans do not go that well. No. And she sort of ends up getting stowed quite a bit. Her big scheme to kind of protect the Earth ends with kind of Earth. Basically, if Kitty Pride hadn't, you know, got it together. Right. The world would have ended. Yeah, the world would have ended. So, you know, so yeah. It's great like great going. Great work. Yeah, nice she work. and Hank nice are work. alike in that way. <laughs> they, they have grand designs that don't always work out. Seeing Hank again in those reading issues, those Castate Devo issues, kind of going, well, I find your entire output to be horrible. Yeah. And, and then they start fucking. And now he is what he is. It's like, oh boy. Well, I liked in Immortal X-Men, Kieran shouted that out. He had yeah, yeah. Kate Kieran, Kieran say... He had Kate say, you know, Hank has really just been intolerable ever since he started fucking Abigail Brand. <laughs> like, has anyone else noticed that? <laughs> and I was like, it's like, <laughs> I can, you know, I can only imagine that she sort of brought him around to her way of thinking of things. But this kind of second order iteration. Yeah, she certainly was part of it. I mean, if you go to the episode that Spencer Ackerman and I did on, on Hank, though, I do mm-hmm. think that you know, there are a lot of people who are sad that Hank has become so despicable over the last 15 years, but I think it's a pretty steady arc from Nisiesa in the 90s, actually. Mm. Like, when he gives Threnody to Sinister for the greater good, 
it's sort of, you're like, okay. And then it's just an endless parade of decisions, but it is interesting to see how morally holier than thou he was with Abigail then. And also with Emma and Scott on Utopia. Like he was so outraged about their X-Force and now his X-Force is considerably more yeah. fucked up than anything they were doing with their X-Force. Yeah, he's so. kind of... Um, <laughs> it's, it's astonishing. I mean, like... Uh, because he thinks if it's him in charge, then he's doing the right thing because he's the smartest person in the room, right? So like he can't be wrong because he's thought out all of the eventualities. And that's kind of Abigail's attitude as well. Even even the kind of, I almost want to sort of go back in time to like the seventies beast, mm-hmm. where like he's basically, you know, he becomes a beast, and then you know he has his kind of dark night of the soul, and then he smokes this enormous amount of duck and like listens to a lot of Steve Wonder and reads sort of Castaneda, <laughs> and like um, I'm kind of wondering because you know it's it's been this very sort of positive thing but he's kind of he's kind of insufferable after that in a sort of different way i gotta be honest i find him insufferable pretty much always i just recorded an episode of gray malkin lane where we went back to a kurt busick story from the 90s and i was just like i know this is the beast that a lot of people are like oh i miss Mm. that beast and i gotta be honest i find this beast just as intolerable in a different way he's doing (laughs) i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna just come out and say he does so much cocaine oh yeah but everybody does. I mean, it was the 80s. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like, obviously, it can never be on panel. No. But, like, you look at him. You look at him. But he's, what he's to the to. gills a lot of oh, the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In that laboratory of his, you know. Yeah, God, he's synthesizing his own. It's like. <laughs> That's probably what he and, Emma, he and Emma bond in New X-Men over the opera. <laughs> they have the same dealer. But they're also definitely bonding over the fact that in the 80s, they were doing rails they every time they were the off opera. panel they spent they spent most of the opera in the toilet yeah yeah, yeah. doing rails it's like <laughs> wonder man wonder man is their dealer we've got we've got it there now. you go we figured it out there we, we have it none of this is canon you none know patsy is... walker has an incredible plug like I mean, if you I, I... needed that was when she was married to the son of satan <laughs> That's the dealer. He's the dealer. David Hellstrom is the connection. Is definitely he gets it. Is the plug, and that's why he and Patsy still have a good relationship after their divorce. Hank was snorting Satan's cocaine in the eighties. Yeah, which like this is not an official Marvel view. No, this has not been endorsed by the mouse. No, you know what it is. Patsy connected them to her sister-in-law, Satana, who definitely is dealing all kinds of stuff all the time. Anyway, the point is. Yeah, to get away. To get, to away, get away, to get us back. Well, I actually think now might be a good time because we're getting more on topic of Abigail yeah, yeah. now to yeah. pause for the character file just so I can catch everybody up on who this lady is, what her deal is. She's not Polaris. The haircut was so essential because now they actually do look very distinct visually as characters mm, for the first time, yeah. which is a great choice. I could not believe that Joss Whedon introduced a new important X-Men character who was a lady with green hair. I was like, Joss, we've got one of those already. This is very confusing, but you know, what are you going to do? Can't tell that guy anything. Anyway, (laughs) let's pause for the super character file on Abigail Brand. I will take you through her complete publication history from Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men up through X-Men Red number three. And then we will come back for more with Al Ewing. We will talk about S.W.O.R.D. and X-Men Red. And then we will answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
X-Men, X-Men. The woman known only by the alias Abigail Brand is the director of S.W.O.R.D., the sentient world observation and response department, initially presented as a branch of S.H.I.E.L.D. devoted to combating threats from outer space. Created by Joss Whedon and John Cassidy, the half-human and half-alien brand has continued to serve as the Marvel Universe's primary authority on extraterrestrial dangers through the creation and dissolution of several other similar organizations, including the most recent iteration of Alpha Flight and the Krakoan revival of S.W.O.R.D. Secretly, she believes Krakoa is a threat to cosmic security, and despite being a mutant herself, has recently become one of the leaders of Orcus, an anti-mutant supergroup derived from various earlier bigoted organizations. Previously the protagonist of Al Ewing and Valerio Schitti's Sword Volume 2, Brand is now the primary antagonist of Ewing and Stefano Caselli's X-Men Rad. Brand makes her first full appearance in 2004's Astonishing X-Men 6, where she's introduced to the X-Men by Nick Fury as his director counterpart at Sword. She continues to recur throughout the Whedon run. Cold and ruthless, Brand has been aiding the alien warlord Ord of the Breakworld in order to prevent him from attacking Earth. As part of that work, unbeknownst to her superiors, she's been aiding him and his human associate Dr. Kabita Rao in developing a cure for mutants, because Ord believes a mutant is destined to destroy the Breakworld. To further his plans, Brand allowed the kidnapping and years-long medical torture of thought-dead X-Man Pyotr Rasputin, a.k.a. Colossus. When she's brought before a tribunal to account for these crimes, Brand is completely unapologetic, claiming she will do anything to protect the planet. Her superiors decide not to punish her, and she remains in command of S.W.O.R.D. Eventually, Brand joins forces with the X-Men in an effort to stop Ord of the Breakworld from attacking Earth, as her appeasement of him has failed. When she and Hank McCoy, aka the Beast, are isolated from the others on the surface of the Breakworld, she surprises him by displaying a superhuman power to create heat and flame, keeping them alive in a sub-zero environment. She later takes a laser bolt to save Hank's life, believing his superior intellect makes him the best equipped to stop Ord's superweapon. Brand herself survives because of an apparently accelerated healing factor. When Hank inquires after this, she distracts him by remarking that she finds him incredibly sexually attractive. We learn that her firepowers can also be used offensively to lethal effect, and that they are why she is called Agent Brand, which is not her real name. After the threat of the Breakworld is ended, Brand offers Hank a job with S.W.O.R.D., enjoying the way he questions her decisions. She reveals that her father, an alien, was a furry monster just like Hank. She later shares that her green hair is natural and inherited from her father's species. The Whedon run on Astonishing concludes in 2008. Later that year, under new writer Warren Ellis and artist Simone Bianchi, the X-Men and Brand argue over custody of a ghost box, a device that allows travel through the multiverse. After she leaves the ghost box with the X-Men, Hank declares Brand is his girlfriend. Later, he calls her in for backup when the antagonist of the storyline, former X-Man Forge, who has gone crazy, needs to be taken out with an orbital laser. Brand is then a major character in the company-wide event Secret Invasion, where she directs Earth's defenses against the Skrulls. She does a decent job. This is not an Avengers podcast. In 2009, Kieran Gillen and Steven Sanders launch a five-issue sword miniseries starring Brand, Hank, and Kitty Pride's dragon, Lockheed. We meet Brand's brother, Lothi, who looks just like Hank, but is green. Brand and Lockheed are targeted by sword bureaucrat Henry Peter Gyrick, formerly of Project Wide Awake, as he tries to have aliens expelled from Earth following the secret invasion. Brand and her allies are ultimately triumphant, and Gyrick is fired from his position. Following the 2012 event Avengers vs. X-Men, in writer Brian Michael Bendis' new volume of Uncanny X-Men, Brand helps Magneto, now a fugitive, hide from the authorities. She reveals to him that she is not just an alien, but is also an X-Gene mutant. Her mother was a human mutant from Earth, and this is the source of her Brand powers. In writer Cy Spurrier's new volume of X-Men Legacy, she's killed by Professor Xavier's son Legion, but is restored to life when Legion regains control of his mind and powers and alters reality. Meanwhile, in writer Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men, Brand becomes an unofficial foster parent to Brew, a mutant brood drone who has become a student at the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. Sword gets blown up like 50 times during this period in various books that are mostly not X-Men books, so don't worry about it. The point is, the organization is not super operational by the time Brand pops up in a major role again. 
That's in 2015, following the company-wide event Secret Wars, when Bran becomes a major supporting character in a new volume of Captain Marvel by Tara Butters, Michelle Fazekas, and Chris Anka, in which Carol Danvers assumes command of Earth's new premier space organization, Alpha Flight, not to be confused with the defunct Canadian super team of the same name, with Brand as her lieutenant commander. Brand is contemptuous of Carol's leadership, and eventually we learn Brand was offered the role of commander herself, but turned it down. Carol and Brand continue to direct Alpha Flight through Hydra's takeover of America in the company-wide event Secret Empire, acting as resistance. In another new volume of Captain Marvel by Kelly Thompson and Carmen Carnero, Carol's secret Cree alien heritage is revealed to the public, and she decides it's a conflict of interest for her to continue to serve as commander of Alpha Flight. She asks Brand to take over the position, and Brand accepts with reservations. Later, at the wedding of Hulkling and Wiccan during the company-wide event Empire, Brand slaps Carol across the face, and it's pretty funny. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, mutant kind creates a new sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. In the 2020 franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, Krakoa comes into conflict with a long-lost ancient warrior culture of mutants called Arako. The dispute between the Krakoans and the Araki takes place in the mystical realm of Otherworld, and is to be resolved by a strange tournament directed by the Omniversal Magistrix Opaluna Saturnine. As part of this game, Teen Cable, see the Cable episode, travels to the old sword station, the Peak, with his parents, Cyclops and Marvel Girl. They quickly discover the place abandoned, with the most recent iteration of the organization massacred by an alien race called the Viscora. The tournament is won by the Krakoans, just barely, but as their favor of Saturnine, they ask that the Iraqi be permitted to join them on Earth. This exponentially increases the mutant population, but the Iraqi have been lost in a hell dimension called Amanth for centuries. They have their own beliefs and cultural norms, and have no interest in assimilating into human or Krakoan society. This all leads into a new volume of Sword, an 11-issue ongoing by Al Ewing and Valerio Schitti. We learn that Brand has quit her role at Alpha Flight after finding it poorly funded and badly micromanaged, and she's replaced there as commander by Henry Peter Gyrick. Allying with Krakoa, but not identifying as Krakoan herself, Brand establishes a new iteration of S.W.O.R.D. with herself as director, staffed entirely by mutants. She demands independence from Krakoan authority, but works closely with the Krakoan government, particularly their liaison to S.W.O.R.D., Magneto. By employing a special mutant circuit, a union of mutant powers working in concert, the new sword is able to access the white-hot room at the core of the multiverse, proceed to the edge of creation, and retrieve a cosmic element called Mysterium. This new metal has enormous technological potential and reshapes the galactic economy, making Krakoa a power player in space politics. During the company-wide event King in Black, Brand prioritizes the rescue of the resurrection circuit called the Five over the defense of Krakoa itself, reasoning that the Five could resurrect the mutant race if it's exterminated, and this might be the only way any of humanity on Earth can survive the invasion of the dark symbiote god Null. Don't worry about Null. She also ends a civil war among the Xenarch's race of aliens by covertly assassinating most of the potential heirs to the throne. At the climax of the 2021 franchise-wide event The Hellfire Gala, an in-universe Krakoan diplomatic effort, a circuit of Omega-level mutants terraforms the planet Mars. Declaring the now lush planet the new capital world of the Soul System and Storm of the X-Men its regent, the Krakoans rename the world Arako and otherwise cede it to their Iraqi cousins, resolving the diplomatic crisis of millions of time-displaced mutants suddenly arriving on Earth. Brand is able to negotiate with other space empires to secure recognition of Arako as Soul's capital in exchange for supplies of Mysterium, which only her mutant circuit can mine from the cosmos. When Wanda Maximoff is apparently murdered at the gala, she gets better, don't worry about it, Brand initially conceals the news from her son Wiccan in order to avoid a diplomatic incident with the Kree Skrull Empire, led by Wiccan's husband, Hulkling. Over the course of S.W.O.R.D., it becomes clear that Henry Peter Gyrick, who has privately become a leader of Orcus in addition to his role as commander of Alpha Flight, has a mole within the S.W.O.R.D. station who's betrayed Krakoa to the humans. This operative is eventually revealed to be Taki Matsuya, a.k.a. Wizkid. But in a double twist, it turns out Taki is a double agent actually working for Brand. Unbeknownst to Taki, in a triple twist in the final issue of S.W.O.R.D., we discover that Brand herself has betrayed Krakoa, as she murders Gyrick by sending him out in airlock, and takes his place as a leader of Orcus. 
following the event miniseries Inferno, in 2022, Sword Volume 2 relaunches into a new X-Men Red title by Al Ewing and Stefano Caselli, centered on Storm's efforts to govern planet Araka without insulting or patronizing the Iraqi culture. Brand immediately takes on an antagonistic role, forming her own team of X-Men to police the planet when Storm declines. As Storm and her allies Magneto and Sunspot try to forge a genuine bond of collaboration with the Iraqi, Abigail Brand lurks always just to one side, covertly working to seize control of the planet and the galaxy for her own ends. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back with Al Ewing. Al, what's the Al short for? Uh, it's short for Alistair. It is. I was like, is it that British? Yeah. Is it Alistair or is it Alistair with a D? It's Alistair with a D. Oh it's, my more, God. it's more Scottish than British. Yeah, my mom was on a Scottish kick. I'm pro-independence, so I, I support the distinction here. I'm, I'm... <laughs> I am I am also pro-independence. I didn't mean to conflate. I would be even more pro-independence if I could ensure that I was on the other side of the line sure. when independence happened. Sure. That's how I feel about California. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like if, if Scotland leaves us, then... Oh boy, you're gonna be you're gonna be on the world right. You're gonna see some stuff that is gonna make Brexit look like sane and responsible decision making. <laughs> but yeah, you know, ideally, ideally, if that ever happens, I'll be you know relocated to Edinburgh or somewhere else where they take the English. You know, Alistair is of course also the name of Moira's grandfather, who Kitty fell in love with when she time traveled back to the past in Chris Claremont's X Men: True Friends. <laughs> <laughs> There's no part of that sentence. <laughs> I... It's an incredible, strange mini where Rachel and Kitty go back to World War II and Kitty wants to kill Hitler and Destiny has to be like, you can't kill Hitler. It will fuck up the whole timeline. And in the meantime, she falls in love with Alistair Kinross, Moira's grandfather. But then they're parted by the time stream or whatever. I mean, I feel like... It's great. By which I mean it's insane fully, but it's yeah. worth a read. The Kitty and Alistair of it all is one theory I have as to like Moira's grudge against Destiny also. Maybe Destiny was trying to hook Kitty and Alistair up to prevent Moira from ever being born. <laughs> which would be, uh, you know. That would be... That, that was some... Someone saying forward planning. Yeah, well, I mean, that's Irene, though. She writes she yeah. wrote those diaries yeah. 100 years before any of the people in them were born. So we are here to talk about Abigail Brand. We've managed to talk for two hours about lots of other stuff. So I yeah. want to dig into Abigail more. Here's the thing. When we get to the questions, the questions are about Abigail. So yeah, that will there we center go. That'll, us. Yeah, if we, get, if we end up getting back to <laughs> because we haven't even gotten to storm yet and i feel like we got to talk about storm too how did the transition from sword to red come together in terms of how you mapped it out well it was one of these things where it was like we knew the relaunch was on the cards mm -hmm. you know we we always would love to do you know, it, it would have been nice to see, you know, Sword 30, Sword Issue 40, Sword Issue 50. Absolutely. But in the world we live in... That's just not always realistic. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, we, we got we got the 11 issues we needed, but also we were already pivoting to, I think, even if it had carried on the Sword, you know, the vote from the readership would have been like, we, we will not accept anything that is not titled Sword. We would still be, I mean, Sword 8, Issue 8 was very much a precursor to X-Men Red. It was like a backdoor pilot, basically, yeah. 
Yeah. So we were already pivoting towards what the book was going to be about. I think with sort of, it sort of started off as this kind of, we had an objective in mind. We had a North Star, which was like the X-Men are going to terraform Mars mm-hmm. and settle it. And that's where the Iraqi are going to go. And, you know, S.W.O.R.D. is moving in that direction. But also we're doing stuff along the way, most of which was a crossover with Venom, but we did get a lot done. But from there, mapping forward, the, the North Star kind of became, it became two things. It became what would become X-Men Red, which was like, you know, Storm on Mars. That title, by the way, genius. Well, when I heard that, I smiled so big. It was the first element. It was like, um, we were calling it that before we even knew what the rest of it was. Because it's like, what's, <laughs> it's what's the X-Men? A, it's so We're good. doing an X-Men the, on Mars, but what's it called? X-Men the only other possibility that I think would have been good, but it's not as good, would have been Planet X. Would have been a good one to reuse. Planet X would have been good. But putting X-Men in the title of any book hmm. is always... That was part of the strategy. That was like, part of the thinking was like, if we had an X in the title. It's helpful. It's only a good thing. It's because only a you good have thing to, to explain to people that Sword is an X-Men book and you don't have to explain to anybody yeah. that X-Men Red is an X-Men book. If you have to tell people to look at the O right. to like yeah. get what, you know, yeah. It's a little bit of an uphill climb that you don't have if there's an X in the title. Yeah. But the... Um, the other thing that S.W.O.R.D. became about, uh, which is, you know, relevant to, to who we're here to discuss, was the kind of fall-slash-unveiling of Abigail Brand. Right. Because, you know, I knew that we were building towards, since, I think, issue five, and I was on the fence until then, but issue five was where we all clicked. And you were like, she's evil. It was like that thing of, like, yeah, what she did, that's it's against the three laws it's murdering you know it's against killing a man it's very she's gonna and my, and i've got magneto here say be careful you're on the edge of something mm-hmm. and she's gonna go for and that's when it hit me that like yeah when empire happens she doesn't tell anybody right and then she goes to push henry garrick out of an airlock and it wasn't until I was right on the brink of having to push Henry Garrick out of that that I thought, and you know what? She's going to take his spot. Yep. She's going to join Orcus because, yeah, she's gone that far down this road. And it's a road, and I'm very, I know exactly what she wants. I know, you know, exactly what the plan is. It doesn't contradict. And there's this one scene she has with Becky. I just read today, and I, I had seen it before, but it had been what? But I just refreshed myself with it today, which is her kind of holding up a burning hand and saying, "Half of me is also this." Right. And it's like the scene where she holds up her burning hand to Garrick is almost—it's almost the other half of that thinking. It's like, yeah, but half of me is not this. But half of me is not. Yeah. And I don't care. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, I care about me and I care about maintaining my power base and Krakoa yeah. and particularly Arako are now threats to that. And so they have to be put down. If you were to ask her, it'd be like, this is what is necessary for the soul system. It's what's necessary for the earth in larger. It's what's necessary for the soul system. 
larger, it's what's necessary for the peace of the galaxy. There'll always be a larger. Well, right. Ex- what it's about is her power. That's, thank you. That's what I was trying to get at is like, because I think there are some readers who were surprised because they maybe bought into the justifications that she uses. And the thing that I think is interesting about that character, you know, I'm famously pretty down on the Whedon run, which is a wildly popular run of X-Men comics that I just happen to bump off real hard. But from the inception of the character, one of the things that's been most interesting about her is that she's completely full of shit, Mm. right? Like she's always saying, oh, it's for the greater good of the earth and this, that, and the other thing. But what she really wants is to be in the room. She wants to be the one making the decisions. She thinks that what's best for the galaxy is for her to be in charge. I mean, what what I would say, I think, not even so much in response to that, but as a corollary of that, is like um, the time when she was invented was a time when this sort of this sort of making of the hard choices to kind of we're in Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's she is that neocon. Yeah. Neocon disguised as neoliberalism thing, right? Yeah, I've 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 been in the room with people who sort of justified some kind of terrible character actions by fictional characters by 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 saying like, oh yeah, no, this person has to make hard choices. And it's like that is that is a very empty phrase. It's a very kind of especially in a world of fiction where we write those choices. Right. It's sort of one step away from that thing where you're like, but what if there was a ticking bomb? And like as writers, we write that ticking bomb. Yeah, you created the circumstance yeah. in which this person had to make that choice. Yeah. Because they're not real. You created the scenario. And, you know, I, I created a, a, a scenario where, like, there was an alien civil war that was kind of raging out of control and, like, consuming us planets. And, like, yeah, the quickest way to deal with that is to, like pop most of them mm-hmm. and it's like yeah you know because these are fictional aliens and then it's like yeah but then you have to kind of think about it and it's like okay so that's monday what happens on tuesday right and it's like this is who abigail is and it's interesting kind of seeing because I, I had a sort of a minute you know i didn't i didn't have time today to read all 160 appearances no sure but I, I did a little bit of homework. I did kind of the sort of, I read the Whedon issues that she appeared in. Um, and then because, you know, they are they are quite Moorish. There is, there's a lot of great craft there. Um, you know, I kind of read around them as well. And then the, um, uh, I read Curran's mini, yeah. his five issues. Or, you know, read it very fast because it's very dense. There's a lot there. There's a lot of stuff in that. Uh, and I read a few more, you know, bits and pieces, like uh, her cameo in, in Secret Invasion. That was the one, that's, so that's the one thing, I was going to bring that up. There's a moment where she's like seeing the scrolls destroying Earth and she cries. I think I missed that. Yeah, there's like a weird moment. It's in, there's a one shot called Secret Invasion, Who Do You Trust? That focuses a little bit on her. Yeah, and no, you see her like a shed a tear of... at the destruction, and it's 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 an odd moment. It's the one time when I kind of buy her, like it's all for Earth thing. But 
I, I mean, but I think that what you can extrapolate is that it's like, which she can't deal with the fact that it's spiraling out of her control. Cause like the thing is, she's not even from earth, right? Like her attitude toward earth is very dispassionate. Most of the time it's just like, I I'm here to do a job because that job makes me powerful is more but she does, how it reads. She does have that thing of like, I will do anything for this planet. Yes. That is not, the home planet it's like it's interesting right yeah we don't know and it, it's like i don't know if like the original conception of her was that she was raised on her because i mean i've sort of heard i've heard bits and pieces about like what just whedon's original intent might be what have you heard about that i mean i you know just like just whedon had some ideas um like you know what the tattoos were about mm. you know just kind of what happened with her dad i feel like it's sort of out there if people want to kind sure. of sure I, I, I don't want to say anything in case it's not out there for people sure and fair. i'm like i'm spilling some juice or whatever sure but like the thing is that her backstory is unveiled very slowly and parceled out by different writers i mean she's not yeah. established as a mutant until deep into her publication history is my recollection like i think that for a while we thought that her fire hands were like an alien thing oh yeah no she doesn't yeah it's it's that conversation with magneto where she uh mm-hmm. she talks about oh half of me is me right that's where the firehead comes from if you retroactively look at it you're like okay the fact that we didn't know she was a mutant in the whedon stuff underlines how disconnected she is from that like as it never comes up and she's talking to the x-men mm. so it felt very natural for her to be skeptical of krakoa disinterested in the concept of it except insofar as it could be used as an engine for her power base you yeah. know what i mean yeah i think that that is what distinguishes her from a character like valerie cooper or even a character like Gyrick, who I do think is, I mean, Gyrick is a self-absorbed and, and power-hungry person, but it does feel like he is interested in, like, the maintenance of order, right? Not just in advancing yeah. himself. Whereas I think for Abigail, the maintenance of order and her impulse toward that kind of authoritarianism is because she wants to be in charge herself specifically. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like that's sort of that's definitely where she's gone. I kind of feel I kind of feel like that her and Garrick are very similar in terms of that sort of they will both say this is for the greater good. Right. I have to do this. And it's when they're kind of pitted against each other. It's, and that's really interesting that makes it I think that's sort of Abigail's high point in terms of like um I guess her kind of heroicness, her sort of mm -hmm. it's like it's where the it's where the I think the rehabilitation of Abigail Brown kind of peaks a little bit. Yeah. Because right after that she kind of becomes Captain Marvel's second in command. Yes, although there is something like a little sinister about that too, right? Because it sort of turns out by the end that she turned down the command so that Carol would take the command so that when it all went to shit. Abigail's hands would be clean. You know what I mean? Like mm, yeah. there's a manipulative 
thing even there that I think is interesting. I mean, what I like about this character is, and this is a way in which she's kind of like Moira too, mm. is like there is a narcissism that belies sort of an emptiness at core. Yeah. There's something missing, right? And the thing about Abigail that's interesting is because we know so little about her past. Like you said, we've seen now enough of Moira's past lives to know what drives Moira. Oh, you can you can map very clearly on Moira. Whereas I think that there are a million things that could be motivating Abigail that all are plausible to me. And up to this point, she's still something of a cipher in that way because she won't give it to us as readers or to the people around her as a character. One thing I had a plan to do at one point, I never, I never got around to this, and it's probably too late because Abigail is no longer the star of the book. The protagonist, right? Yeah, uh, you know, or even a, a deuteragonist. She's kind of she's, she's the antagonist. antagonist. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I never, I never really got around to, I never got the chance to do, was I did want to get into her her parentage. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to get into who her dad was. And I kind of, um, I sort of did in a little way because I kind of made that like an extension of the brother in the, you know, a kind of fairy, a sort of fairy. Well, yeah, comment. and you, you named the planet. Yeah, which is the end, the very last bit of her brother. Of name. his name, so can, right. So you can, can extrapolate a that, cultural norm. Yeah, Abigail's real name also ends in accident. There's a question about that. <laughs> we'll get there. Well, I'll answer that question now. Abigail's real name does it. You can probably you can probably come up with the rest of it from Loki's name. Yeah. But like um, you know, we know that her dad is furry, um, because she said so to Hang. Very strange. Yeah. A very strange extent to Hang. Yeah, there's a question about that too. But I, I, here's 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 <laughs> just to to get to the heart of like a lot of my mm. issues with Whedon. Yeah. This comes out of my being a super fan of Buffy and Angel as an adolescent. I was an obsessive. I taught a student instructor class on Buffy and like analysis and all of that at, when I was in undergrad. I wrote my bachelor's thesis in part on Whedon's television work. But somewhere along the line, I started to notice like a pattern with his female characters that started to make yeah. me uncomfortable. And one of those things is the need that he seems to have, particularly with mature women characters who are in positions of power, for them to be humbled by their obsession with or inability to extricate themselves from like a relationship with a man. You see it happen with Lila Morgan on Angel. Like, she's just relentlessly humiliated. And she's evil. Like, I'm not suggesting that mm. Lila should get happily ever after. But the way that she is humiliated over the course of the love triangle plot between her and Wesley and Fred. And then he does it with Emma throughout the entire... I mean, I, I find the mm. Whedon run to be... He gives her a couple of great lines, but I find it to be yeah. really contemptuous of her overall. And then with Abigail, it's like, she's tough as nails, but don't worry, she loves to fuck. And I'm just kind of like, okay, like, Hank gets a hot girlfriend. I'm like, okay, like, I, there's just something about the whole vibe of that that was off to me. 
Yeah, I don't. I, we don't need to linger on it, but I just that's not that's not my favorite. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to like kink shame Abigail Brad. Um, right, but you know, I don't. I don't want to say that like. But notably, Morrison has Trish Tilby break up with Hank because he's turned into a cat guy, and she's like, it feels bestiality adjacent to me now. Abigail, meanwhile, is like, this does feel bestiality adjacent, and I love that. Yeah, but I like it. You look like an alien. You look like my dad. Yeah, that's that's where it gets slightly um, okay, because <laughs> Hank and her brother do canonically have the same face structure <laughs> in a way that's in the horse beast era of, of yeah, but sword. that's you know, I'm not I'm not gonna go I'm not gonna get down on like some of these autistic styles. No, 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 but like they look I'm just gonna say whatever the space the exact is same cat style beast looks used. exactly like her yeah. brother. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna kink shame Africa brand. I don't wanna come down on I the... do, especially with the eye socket <laughs> thing. Oh Matt, well get the your fingers out of like the eye socket. Taking it to a new level, taking it to an exciting new level, as detailed in this month's cosmopolitan. I have you explored your boyfriend's was life? have you socketed that <laughs> have you not socketed it's what the kids are socketing into. is what all the hottest war <laughs> criminals are up to these days yeah i thought that nothing could be less sexy generally than the idea of contemporary abigail brand and hank flirting and then she socketed him and i was <laughs> truly repulsed but it was perfect is what i'm trying to say can i can i touch it you can tell that he was like yeah babe touch it like they're both <laughs> like so socket. touch my socket it was so gross god i hate them but i love to hate them like it was such a good scene because i was like it was wonderfully oh. done ben went on the slack and was like Hey, uh, I want to get your approval for this, and I was like, <laughs> yeah. I, approve, "I approve it wholeheartedly." Stamped, like am, you're, yeah. we're in on the side. I am two hundred percent behind Ugh. on panel on panel socketing. I was like, I can't believe this got through standards and practices. <laughs> so. I mean, you know, it's like, um, yeah, it's it's the hot new craze. They can't not be behind. No, I mean, I get it. I, I, it was bold. It was a bold move. The TikTokers uh, are all doing it. Everybody's socketing um, now. Gen Z yeah. loves to socket. Yeah. Abigail's a trendsetter. But to, to, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to say like Abigail is wrong for wanting to like, especially since she is herself up, ain't it? But like, there's something about the way, I don't know, the whole, the whole kind of like, it does defang her a little bit. It defangs her a bit. It's the way it's played as like, nothing can get at Abigail Brand, but if you want to fuck her, you can fuck her. Like, there's just something. It, it, to me, it objectified her in a way that was odd. I'd almost say it sort of adds a level of kind of comedy and cool to a sort of... Because, like, the, I, I feel like at the heart of what is meant in that, you know, to step away from how it comes across, but I feel like what is meant in that is like a humanization. Right, but it, it just, to me, it came across as more just like a prize for Hank, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, that, that as well. But I, I almost feel like humanizing brand when you've introduced her as you know the torture apologist who wants to cure all mutants <laughs> yeah it's kind of it is saying you know oh this yeah don't worry about she cuts but like it's i feel like it's meaning to say don't worry fellas she's cool she's all right yeah 
I know she apologizes. So absolutely. But she's not a villain. We want to keep her around. So like, we've got to make it look smooth. Right. There, I have to say, I I'm, I'm going to be just straight up. I did not like this character at all until Sword, where I, I really yeah. enjoyed your writing of her. And Oh, I thought, you meant, I thought you meant the originals. Well, it's not to say that I didn't like Kieran's mini, but I had an aversion to this character because the way that she's introduced is so loathsome. And then we're all supposed to be okay with hanging out with her after that. And I'm just kind of like, yeah. it's the same way I felt about Kavita Rao, actually. Like, the fact that Kavita Rao hangs out with the X-Men on Utopia felt fully insane to me. I was like, we should not, this woman should be in prison. Like, we should not be, like, chilling with her. I mean, I think, I think to be honest, we're, we're kind of leaning back towards the whole, the time in which she was created. Like, the... Mm -hmm. The idea that like somebody who will sort of do what must be done. Well, she's very zero dark thirty, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. You Even know? you know she she will do what must be done. She will kind of, and you know if you don't if you don't get with the program then you're naive. And it's sort of very much kind of making because that was who Nick Fury was at the time. Nick Fury kind of really became this guy. Well, and Maria Hill was also very much that at the same time. And the way that they used Maria Hill was to be like, Maria's worse than Nick. It made Nick yeah. okay. But what Nick was doing was fucked up. You know what I mean? They are exactly the same person, but Nick has stubble in a cigar. Is like, yeah. and an eye patch. And yeah. he's a dude. And, a and cool he's a man, dude. so. He's yeah, a man. It's fine. And it's like, okay, yeah. I, fine. I think what made me turn around on the character in this volume of sword and really come to like her a lot is how unflinchingly I felt like you acknowledge from pretty much the beginning of the book that she's bad. Like she's not yeah. a heroic character. And I, I mean, but, that doesn't mean then, she can't be a know. compelling protagonist. Well, but the thing is like- I didn't know how bad she was- You didn't know how get. bad she was gonna be, but yeah. you it's a natural outgrowth of the characterization that we're given. And listen, I love a pragmatic character. Mm. I have often defended some of Emma's more nasty moments because I think that she was right about Wanda in House of M. I do. But Emma doesn't really have illusions about whether or not that's righteous, right? And I think that what is so off-putting about Abigail mm is the way that she puffs herself up as like, like it's morally good for me to be making hard choices. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. She has that specific self-importance of a politician. I feel like I've never given her that speech. Like, now that you say that, I feel like she's always saying, okay, we're doing this. Mm -hmm. We're doing this. This is happening. Get on board and get out of the way, you know. But I, I can't remember a time when, except that speech with Magneto, that conversation she has with Magneto, and even then that's like, uh, I personally did not feel like letting this stand. But she, I don't believe that I've given her the speech where, and this, I, I'm counting this as a mistake on my part because I think it's, it is kind of integral to her character. But I don't think I've given her the speech where she says, if you don't get with me on this, you are the bad person. Right. You are morally bad. Yes. I mean, there is that scene where she's like before the she's on trial, basically. And she says like, not, this is not one of yours, but I'm saying like, where no, she's no, like, there's no that. one I will not. Yeah. Nothing I would not sacrifice. No one I would not kill and no one I would not sleep with. 
to save this planet. And I was like, why do we have to take it to the sex place again? But that's. And she immediately starts sleeping with Beast. <laughs> so, yeah. Jesus, I'm glad. Telling, right? Yeah. I mean, but, but that's also in that, in that room. The other thing she says in that room is like, oh, are you going to, for the benefit of the listeners, I'm about to see some finger quotes. Are you going to retire me? Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be retired. And it's like, oh my God, that's the world we're in right now. We're the world where we're like, the quote-unquote good guys. Right. Uh, yeah, we're just going to fucking throw you out on their lock if we don't like what you say in this fucking secret panel. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, welcome to Zero Dark Thirty. Welcome to like, right. this, this world. But that speech is so self-important. You know, it, it, yeah. It's like she's talking about her pragmatism, but she's talking about it as like a moral imperative. Mm. It's literally exactly what you said, which is that like anyone who disagrees with me is morally wrong. Yeah. Is very much part of her attitude. And I think that that is what makes her relationship to Krakoa interesting because that's how you become a mutant petal of Orcus. Like, right. Like is by saying, no, it's the mutants who are wrong because they disagree with me and therefore yeah. they're evil. She has a very black and white mentality in that way that I think is interesting. I mean, I think that there is something so unctuous about her. Mm. She portrays herself as like a straight talker. You know what I mean? Mm. But she's actually sycophantic when mm. she wants something. I think that what's really been good in X-Men Red is once we got out of her point of view that we had in S.W.O.R.D., we start to see, I mentioned this earlier, how much other characters can tell that that's what she's doing. And she's not actually as savvy as she thinks she is. <sighs> because once you step out of her head, it's like, okay, yeah, like we all know people like this and we've all worked with people like this. And when Storm is talking to her, there's a moment where she, I mean, she's talking to a black woman mm. about the people that this woman has decided to immerse herself in their culture, to respect their culture. And Abigail dismisses them basically as like a bunch of violent thugs. Like I forget exactly what she says, but it's a, the language she uses is very much yeah. something that gets Storm's back up and it's because it feels racialized. It just does. Yeah. And that's right before she says Mars and Storm corrects her and says Araco. And then she says Mars again, very pointedly. Yeah. Abigail is very much on the side of those who think of Araco as a monolithic culture. Yes. And specifically a threatening, yeah. disorderly culture of undesirables Yeah, that she needs to control or eliminate. Mm. That is something that we saw in how she dealt with the Snark War, right? Like this is her, it's, she has an imperial mentality. Yeah. She's born on a colony world, and she's basically the ultimate imperial thinker in that. Yeah, world. she picks the winner, and it's like, and it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I've created this kind of fictional thing, and it's sort of I've presented this sort of one very quick solution to it, but it's a fictional thing. I could have come up with any solution to it. Well, right. I could have teleported the whole war into the neutral zone, or like. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, and that's off the top of my head. Okay, yeah, fine. Teleport the whole war into the neutral zone. Or, you know, the um, 
make a pocket battlefield and like uh, put manifold in on the planet. Say manifold, I want you to teleport all of these shell rooms into a pocket battlefield and let them sort it out. Right away, that's kind of containing it in a way that allows. You know, I mean, I'm assuming you can't just let it rage, but like it's better than just popping them on the head. But it's less controlled. Yes. Here's the thing. She picks the winner and the winner is her. Mm. That's what it really is. Yeah. She manipulates situations to ensure that she has the greatest possible level of control at any time. Now, is that an understandable thing to do if you're trying to be a power player? Of course. But it feels like there is no... I mean, an Orcus is the ultimate realization of this, but like, mm. there's no hard choice she won't make if it benefits her. Yeah. At the end of the day, it isn't a hard choice. Like, there are no hard mm. choices for her because she will always choose herself. Yeah. She'll sacrifice whoever she has to. This is the thing. When we, whenever we talk about hard choices, it's always pulling the trigger on something else. Mm-hmm. The hard choice is never pulling the trigger on herself. On herself, ever. And it's like, Nick Fury will never because Nick Fury will always extrapolate the future where he's needed. You know, mm-hmm. this is the lie. This is the lie of Nick Fury. This is the lie of Jack Bauer. Yes. She is very Jack Bauer as well. Yeah, I hate Jack Bauer. Oh, Jack Bauer is disgusting. That's from 24 for the kids. It was, it was a show yeah, with Kiefer Sutherland. It was a well, yeah. It was it was back <laughs> when socketing was, was all the rage. <laughs> Everybody was socketing back then. Too. It's Everybody back was now. Socketing. It's yeah. like the 90s, you know, it's back. Never went away. 24 was a show about how the only way to beat the bad guys is to be the baddest guy. 24 is like, what if there was a ticking bomb on the TV show? What if the entire world was a ticking bomb? It's always ticking, yeah. You know, what if it ticks forever? What if the bomb ticks forever and you've always got to talk to somebody else? The wildest thing about 24 was how many truly incredible actors were on 24 doing stuff on 24. And you're like, why is Cherry Jones on 24? Why is this happening to Cherry Jones? Why is Shorey Agdashlu on 24? How is this happening? But it was a huge show. I get why you would take the Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm about to like, I'm about to make all of the the 24 super fans who are (laughs) foaming at the mouth at me for like dissing their torture hero deck mouth. Uh, I, I got like four hours into the first 24. So, you know, I'm I'm four. I got four. You know, that was my 24. My 24 was four. Oh, well, you didn't even get to them fridging the wife at the end of the first season then. I heard about it. I heard about the tiger. I heard about all of it. <laughs> the um, cougar. I heard, about, the cougar. I heard about the towel. I heard about all of it. <sighs> did Jack Bauer ever go to the toilet? Uh, not that I recall. And we did watch him for... He wasn't a young man. No. He was not a young man. That should have been... A third of an episode. You'd think. My stomach would get upset if I were trying to prevent a nuclear attack on American soil. I'd need to. I'd need to you at know? least pee. Right. You'd think. Does he have diapers? I Is he doing wanna, all this in a diaper I that he was wearing anyway? I don't want to contemplate Kiefer Sutherland's depends if I'm being perfect. When he was like at the funfair with his daughter going like, nothing will happen in this 24-hour period. <laughs> was he wearing a diaper even then? Maybe he's always prepared. Well, he's, yeah, he's like the scouts. He's, he's got, like MacGyver, he you know, like he's just always. And when it gets really full, he can talk something. Okay, it's we like, got to stop. Oh, great. <laughs> but anyway. I'll never stop. Anyway, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit before we get into the questions about Storm and Magneto and your vision yeah. of those characters. I mean, we've seen you write Sunspot extensively before. I would actually say you write my favorite Sunspot. Oh, thank you very much. So I'm very excited to see 
you back with that character. I hope that he and Kovac never held will kiss. That's my request. I mean, obviously, I would love to have any kind of bisexuality in, you know, in comics at all times. Yeah. That is my jam. That's your bisexual agenda, and we all see I, I have a huge that. one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I do have I do have a giant agenda. But if there was ever a character where it already is But it was correct. There. I mean, it's been there since, you know, the eighties, in my opinion. I mean it you know He's a Claremont character. They're all pretty bisexual. There are characters who it would make very little sense for, and there are characters who would make an extreme amount of sense for. Well, there are characters where I feel like it's already basically canon. I mean, Teeny had mm. him refer to both Boom Boom and Banshee as hot in Secret X-Men because, yeah, they are. Like, I mean, <laughs> obviously, you know, I cannot speak for the mouse, but like... Right, um, no, I gotcha. Yeah, there are characters who it would make an extraordinary amount of sense for as much sense as the sun rising in the morning. Yep. And that's what I'll say about that. You've written him before you wrote him as an Avenger for quite some time. Yeah. I'm excited to see you revisiting him now that he's back firmly at X. Storm and Magneto, though, are newer for you. Yeah. And I am really enjoying your takes on them. So I was just curious as to, like, your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, Storm, I I know from the Secret Wars days. Right. <laughs> God, the Secret Wars days. We're back to that. We're back. Uh, nothing. Why does nothing ever stay buried? I've said that I feel like your storm is very much in the mold of the Claremont storm, mm. which was one of my favorite characters. She's and very informed. Storm fell off for me in the 90s in a lot of ways because I don't feel like she's ever been as actualized or as complicated as she was in the 80s material. I wasn't there for the 90s. I wasn't there for the cartoon. And I just didn't like, I, I will say I like how Coates wrote her a lot. Yeah. I just don't like her in the Black Panther stuff, particularly. I think it minimizes her to make her a supporting character for someone else, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think her kind of role in that, anytime a character is in somebody else's book, it's always going to be somebody else's book. Exactly. It's Charles's book. It's the Black Panther's book. If he is not starring then something is wrong in the machine what was the line that you put in red it was like bran thought she was getting the queen of wakanda and she got yeah the queen of the morlocks was that right she thought she was getting the queen of wakanda and she got the queen of the morlocks and yeah. i was glad because the way i've been reading storm's whole relationship to araco is that it's her trying to make amends for the way she failed the morlocks yeah i mean the you know, Brand saying that Queen of the Mullocks is not, it's not 100% a ringing endorsement. No. You know, it's like, oh, okay, so she's not going to just be sitting on the sidelines and rubber stamping the agenda of the main character of the book. She's going to be turning up for a few weeks and then heading back home. Right, because she didn't really effectively leave yeah. the Morlocks. She didn't yeah. really respect their culture. She didn't really do what you need to do if you're going to take a leadership role. This is different. They paid for it, and she doesn't want to do that again. She didn't sacrifice. If there's one great shame that Storm has, it's her failure with the Morlocks. We talked about brands never pulling the trigger on herself. Mm. Storm is willing to take a bullet. 
Famously, she took one for Rogue and lost her powers. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. is one of the most huge. essential Storm moments. She didn't know what would happen, but she thought she was going to die. I mean, she mm. took a real bullet. Yeah. In many ways, she did die. I mean, that's what life death is about. Yeah. The Daughterman redesign is really... Well, first of all, it's incredible. Uh, he he's he's a wonder. I love the covers. They're so good, but it really underlines what you are doing with the character, which is to me, Storm was always at her most interesting when Claremont took the powers away because she was challenged and she had to really face herself, figure out who she was. Yeah. But what I like about what you're doing is we've done the story where Storm doesn't have her powers, right? Like we want to see Storm yeah. with her powers. But what you've done here is give her something that challenges her to an extent yeah. where she is forced in the same way to say, okay, but who am I really at core? And it turns out that what she wants to be is something more than what she's been in the past. And we're, we're going to keep loading that on her. I also just love having her and Magneto together again because I love their dynamic in the 80s when she's leading the X-Men and he's the headmaster at the school. It's really interesting. Anytime I see them together. I think they should kiss too. I'm just putting that out there. I think that would be a great... At one point, at one point I veered away from this, but this is one of the great... This is another one that your listeners will be like, why not? Why could that not happen? But at some point, I was going to have Magneto and Abigail. Full on banging. Oh, my God. <laughs> full on. Full on. There was going to be a chess, a chessboard. They were going to knock it over. I, I, I am glad that that didn't happen purely because she looks a lot like his daughter. Oh, God. Now you say that. Yeah. I'm glad it didn't happen. I'm glad that. you didn't Jesus. do it. Because, yeah. I'm just, really glad I didn't do it. Yeah. No, instead, instead I went for... Uh, it would have been funny. Sad. I went full sadness. Well, he has, and he has his new boyfriend, the Fisher King. So he's, he's, he's I mean, in the field. As soon as, as soon as Stefano drew the Fisher King, oh boy. Oof. At the design stage, Stefano showed me like his design chief for the Fisher King. And, you know, he's, he's, you know, a little... He's got a certain degree of the Captain Bird's eyes about him. <laughs> You know, and if you've seen the new Captain Birds, you know what I mean. I was like, oh, I'd love to see him smile. I think he's got a missing tooth. And Stefano comes back with this this thing of him doing a smile when like, one of his teeth is gone. And I don't think he's actually smiled enough in the book to like show this off yet. But like, you know, it's, and he's, he's saying, like, oh, Al, how did you know? Uh, you know, this little speech bubble. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ooh, oof. Yeah, that's a, that's a sexy guy. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. I just want to explain to people, Captain Birdseye is a, a <laughs> frozen food mascot. He's the fish fingers guy. We don't really, mm. we don't really do fish fingers in, I guess we call them fish, fish sticks, sticks here. But yeah. I, I just feel like Captain Birdseye is not a, a, a very common American pop culture reference. So I just wanted to clarify. There's a whole Captain Birdseye multiverse. <laughs> when I was growing up, Captain Birdseye was like a very old man with fish pit. He was like Santa Claus. And then he got hot suddenly in the he 90s. He got super hot in like, for two years in the 90s, he was this like incredibly hot Italian guy. Yeah. And now they've created a new Cat and Birds Eye. And I actually, I actually did one of my very, very rare, super rare shit post tweets on this, <laughs> which like I almost never did because I almost never got on Twitter. I got on Twitter for Eurovision and that's it. Twitter is bad and I am trying to use it 
less. Yeah, I, I hate it. It's just really bad for everyone's mental health. I dislike it massively, but it is it is how I keep track of the dissolution of the United Kingdom. Oh yeah, no, it's it's my it's my news source, which is part of why it's so bad for yeah. my mental health. <laughs> yeah, no, it's terrible. It's appalling. <laughs> but I did do a shit post on there, which was like old, you know, my childhood Captain Bird's Eye, hot Italian naughty's Captain Bird's Eye. The mycologists from Inscription who combined <laughs> two things into one. And then the new Captain Birdseye, who was literally those two things combined into one. He's like an older gentleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is who 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 would who would absolutely get it? I, you know. Um, I've gone on record. I could see like uh an Alexander Siddig type, like in the role. You know what I mean? Like he it's that kind of distinguished older gent. The, the fact that the Fisher King does provide fish. <laughs> the Fisher King is 616 Captain Birdseye. I've said it. I can't unsay it. I loved the bit where uh, he was like, I'm the Fisher King. And Eric was, I'm, I'm still, I gotta, the Max thing is going to take me some time. Magneto. I know. It, it is his name. It's his actual name. Well, I mean, it is. We've been told since the noise, it's his actual name. <laughs> I liked when... Magneto was like, oh, I must tell Betsy Braddock because that's funny. I mean, one of my favorite things that we just simply haven't, no one has brought it up in the comic at all, is that all of the Iraqis speak English and they just do and it's fine. I haven't even seen fans like, you know, even pedantic people, I haven't seen them. And I just assume Saturnine cast a spell or something and we don't have to worry about it. it. This occurred to me recently, it's like, are they speaking English or is Magneto just has Magneto been telepathically programmed with the Iraqi right. Did they all just learn the, did do the Krakoans just know Iraqi at this point telepathically or are they all speaking English or what is it? But like they're all, they're all talking to aliens. So presumably they all speak galactic standard as well. Right. So I, I just assumed that like, as part of the tournament, Saturnine just like cast a spell, but the summoner already Mm. did when he showed up on, uh, on Krakoa, so who I mean, knows? it might be it might be the all. Uh, Marvel does have that language mm-hmm. which Thor uses, which is just right to get around all this. Thor speaks. The yeah, Allspeak, no, it's just like, funny because they would have been speaking like ancient Egyptian or whatever back in <laughs> when they were actually on Arako. I feel like the cleanest way out of this one is just to have at some point. Thor or somebody taught them the all speak and they just was like, oh yeah, that's sure. really efficient. That's really efficient. We'll just speak that. But they do have their own language. It's been mentioned. It has been mentioned. Yeah. And then there's also the fact that the islands can't communicate anymore, right? So like the language has evolved over time. Yeah. In Amund. I, I, I assume that it was just like a bunch of Yeah, but it's like also we know, like specifically Bay the Blood Moon's power yeah. Is that she is understood. So I don't think the rest of them are speaking. They all speak. That was a fun day in the writers' room when we came up with that one. Oh, she's great. Yeah. She's really, really great. I say I say we, I was a spectator. <laughs> what do you find most compelling about using Abigail as your antagonist here with these three characters that are being emphasized now as protagonists, Storm, Sunspot, Magneto. What makes her the the natural bad guy for this story? I think this all came down to the big question I wanted to answer with this book was like, who are who are the Iraqi? Who are 
who are the people of this like ancient mm-hmm. island? This who are they? What's their deal? I want to get into them as like a people because we've met we've met the Morrowlanders, we've met like the art community. I mean, you know, we've met the Fisher King. We know that it is possible to have like Iraqi who are humans, right? Yeah, that was the topic of conversation it came up with. Like, what happens if? If somebody is born in Iraq with no powers, right? Is it like Sparta? Do they just like leave you out in the wilderness to die? Yeah, whatever, that was you know? that was one of the suggestions. I was like, oh, no, that's that's gonna make it. And you know, from a purely practical perspective, that's gonna make it an impossible thing to write, right? But like at the same time, they're at like war, and it's like they're you know they're at war with like a population of demons. So like you know, you will train as best you can. But if you've got no powers, yeah, you're going to have to be pretty crafty, good at what you do. Yeah, I liked that in Legion of Axe, Sai stressed that Zasen is considered weaponless, even though she is a mutant, because her yeah, power that's... isn't a combat power. It makes sense that the Fisher King can be respected if Zasen can be, because she's just as weaponless to them as he is. Yeah. You know, it's not about the X gene for them. It's about what can you do? I've been waiting for people to join the dots between these two. Well, here I am. And nobody has yet. <laughs> nobody has yet. Nobody's, nobody's done it yet. I've been waiting for it. Nobody's, I've not seen anybody. If you go back and read X-Men Red 1 and Legion of X, it's in plain sight. And nobody has seen it. That she's his daughter. Yeah. That she went to the vile. Spoilers. You know, I've, I've had conversation with Sai. There's more to it. Than, there's more to it than that. It's it's complicated. It's a whole complicated story that we will get into. I caught that reading Legion that it was maybe a possibility, but it's funny because my read on that in X Men Red One, I assumed that his daughter was Mother Rapture of the Locust Vile because she has the blade fish. A lot of people did because of the fish thing. Yeah, it was like I was like, it's a fish motif. Completely separate fish. I'm happy for him that uh, that it's not because Mother Rapture would be a much more distressing person mm. to have at the. I do need. I need, need to kind of bring bring the locust well back in, and obviously, well, they're obviously, certainly you know, going to have something to say about the end of three. I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, there's there's I've got what I'm up to at the minute. I just wrote six, uh, seven. I started on with a uh, i'm gonna be very very careful here i'm in the middle of writing a speech that i think will be an important speech and then yeah eight we start getting more into the shiar and that'll be a good issue i suspect that'll be a good issue for cable pants and yeah that's about all i can say without without actually dropping you know the, the line between teasers and spoilers is so it's wafer thin in the Thunderbird episode, I asked Steve, like, is there anything you want to tease? And he laid out, like, the next seven issues. I mean, not, it was, <laughs> not with spoilers, really, because it's, like, all stuff that's been solicited. Yeah. But yeah, it yeah. was very funny. It was just like, and then we do this, and then we do this, and then we do that. And I was like, okay, cool, great, love that. It all sounds See, I'm much, more, I'm much more, I'm much more, I'm like, you know, tickle up, tickle up, you won't believe. Yeah, 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 you yeah won't no, believe. That's, that's my, that's my <laughs> Well, I've enjoyed the speeches that we've read so far. Storm and Magneto have both had some great mm. soliloquies. What are you enjoying about those characters together? Yeah, uh, Storm and Magneto. Um, I mean, Storm, 
I think I said like Secret Wars was kind of my 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 introduction to Storm, which was like um you know, it was Storm as leader of the X-Men, mm-hmm. but still with her powers, but still kind of kicking against Magneto. So it was it was sort of almost the perfect introduction to, to Storm. It's also a key Magneto becoming a good guy story, Secret Wars. Yeah, that was my first exposure to Magneto. It's like, oh, okay, Magneto is a villain, but he's on the hero's side for some reason. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, everything he says is like, oh, okay, well, this guy... Seems to have shooters. Magneto is weird, but it is of a piece with the arc that Claremont was doing. The first thing you see with Magneto is him in his bachelor pad, (laughs) kind of (laughs) getting it on with the wasp. The Magneto and wasp moment is truly baffling to me. (laughs) It's it's wild. It's like I. I mean, you know, hey, hey, you know, it's the eighties. I have, I have no idea, you know, how far it actually went. But like, um, knowing Jim Shooter, he obviously intended it to be like we fade to black and it's red shoe divers. But like the whole, the whole thing, where like, yes, welcome to my sexy lair. <laughs> it's like, okay, Magneto, that's this is this is my first exposure to you. As a small child, God. So there's that. But like after after we've got through that, it's like um, he's mostly there to kind of like nearly take Doctor Doom's hand. Mm-hmm. And then it's like you know the X Men are like, oh, he's a, he's a villain all along. And Captain America's like, oh, it could have been any of us. I was a little bit tempted, but not as much as him. Right. So you know that was the impression I got of him as a as a thing, but Storm comes out of it really well. Like almost just like hundred percent. And then like pretty much the first X Men issue I read after that, it was Troll of Magneto, and then the Duel issue, mm. the Luck of the Ballast. You know those those are what kind of came into my life. Uh, so I got to see you know Magneto and Charles in the Rose Garden, and Charles going teach my students you'll never know unless you try. And that was like my second introduction to Magneto. It's like, what the hell? You know, this is all I know about this guy. Is that like, uh, so now I'm probably the biggest Magneto booster in the X Slack because, you know, this is my introduction to him. It's like Professor X going, hey, you incredibly good and noble person, please take over from me. <laughs> and like in Secret Wars, all of, all of the heroes going, like, oh, yeah, no, he's. He was a villain, but not now, obviously. Right. And like, okay, so that's Magneto. And then Storm, you know, the first introduction to her is like her beating Cyclops. And so obviously, you know, I get my hands on Storm. And the first thing I do, just to get it out of my system, is like take her powers away and make her beat an incredibly powerful dude. It's like I have to do that. It's like a compulsion. I don't have a choice. Now that that's out of my system, I see no reason for her to be depowered like ever again no i agree we've done it yeah it's i mean now the thing to explore is how powerful can she get right while staying human and keeping her essential yeah morality you know i swear i'm not just saying that to get on the good side of like all of her fans (laughs) well i mean i i liked that there was a very brief moment where she was depowered in red just or in sword rather just to remind you she doesn't need yeah yeah she doesn't need she doesn't need any of this but guess what yeah she's fine she's got him and yeah 
you're fucked either way, but you're double fucked because she's an Omega Low. <laughs> I mean, we're kind of we're kind of building this thing, which I'm sort of I'm still building towards. Like issue two was not the it was not the decider. I've almost taken a lesson from professional wrestling. Mm. In that, like Storm versus Vulcan is the fight that people came to see. You know, it's the two Omegas who won Magneto in the book. And, you know, we've seen Storm versus Magneto. That's not interesting and not relevant. Storm versus Vulcan is the fight people have paid to see. We've sort of seen the opening bout. We've got a little bit of, like, the, the shoots, you know, the kind mm-hmm. of yelling into the mic part. I don't I don't watch professional wrestling. I don't know anything about it. But I've played the game. I've played the video game. I know that you have to do a, a yell into the mic bit yes. before you can You do have to cut next. the promo. So, yeah. So, you know, we've, we've cut a bit of a promo. We've had, like... Um, We've had Mantello going like, oh, that wasn't the real Vulcan. <laughs> Ooh. We're building up to a fight, a real fight. Yeah. Because we got to have them. And I feel like... Thank you for fixing the Petra and Sway thing, by the way, because that was bothering yeah, me. Yeah, that, that was, that was like... <laughs> <laughs> and you fixed it. It was a great no prize. Like, you really did just... Mm. That was in the works for a while. That was like... I remember... I remember John brought it up in the Slack. Mm-hmm. Well, he said on Jay and Miles, it's like his one great yeah, regret yeah. on his time in the X-Men is he fucked that up. Jonathan Jonathan is wonderful because he, he does not care about like letting people see behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. And that is great. It's so great most of the time. Every now and then I'm just like, ooh, we didn't need to know that. Like when he mentioned that he was going to do an Imperial Guard book with Cannonball and Sunspot, I was just like, yeah, no, I'm it's, just like, going to be so sad that I never got to read that. I didn't need to I know. Mean, but otherwise, you know, I really so do appreciate goes. the candor, you know? But, like, with that, we were... I feel like it came up when Thunderbird came back. And, like, uh, we were all talking about, okay, well, now we can bring mutants back from before, you know, Thunderbird got killed. Oh, like, Petra and Sway, who are back. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, we, we had a back and forth better and, like, I think that was when I said, like, well, what if they're energy constraints? Right. And then, you know, Jonathan was like, and again, the timeline of this is escaping me. I don't know if that was in response to Jonathan saying, oh, they're always meant to be just figments. Mm-hmm. But I just thought, oh, okay, well, well, we'll do that sometime. And then, you know, I got it into X-Men Red 2, and that was, like, written. And, you know, it had gone to... It gone to Stefano and Stefano had drawn it. And then Jonathan mentioned it on Jen Miles. And we were like, oh man, we were this close to like explaining it. And then um yeah, it's fine. We just explain it anyway. You know, that's uh that was the solution that we'd sort of come up with, I wanna say like two or three months before the issue dropped, around the time of Thunderbird's return. Mm-hmm. It, no, it has to be longer ago than that. But like around the time of Thunderbird's return, that was the solution that we invented. And I finally got an opportunity to put it on the page. And until I had an opportunity to put it on the page, it was just slack talk. So, yeah. you know, Jonathan had no way of knowing. I also liked the reveal in 3 that Cable and Thunderbird were working the crowd when they did that because it was so mean. That plane to catch it line was brutal. is so nasty. And I was like, it Cable, was- my God. I mean, I do think that he he genuinely believes that, you know, it was irresponsible of John to leave. Jimmy oh, sure. I mean- but that was just such a real slap in the face. 
the best lies have a ring of truth. Exactly. Like, you know, exactly. John Proud's like he meant every word. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, no, I, I wrote, I wrote the the face off, and then I was like, these two are going to need to work together. And it's, I do this a lot, but it's like um, the quickest way towards two people working together when you only have twenty pages a month is they were already working together. They already were, right, exactly. And to be honest, it made it made a fun it made a fun sense. I always it's it's a beat I love maybe too much. People started to expect it. I loved that you knew people would figure out that WizKid was a double. It was like, basically, like, yeah. you clearly knew that we would guess that WizKid wasn't actually evil. And so then there's mm. an additional twist where Abigail's evil. It's such such a great, it's such a great. Like, that was fun. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that with WizKid if I wasn't, if I didn't know that Abigail was going to make that. That term, mm-hmm. but Wizkid was Wizkid did end up the person purely on the basis of like originally I was thinking Mentolo, but then it was like no Mentolo would betray Abigail because he's getting paid. He would be the most loyal. I thought it was going to be Peeper. Yeah, a lot of people did because I was like, "You're going to make us love Peeper, and then he's going to betray them." <laughs> I like him both too much and not enough. Fair. I like him too much as a character. I don't like him too much as a a piece of the puzzle. I feel sure. like he's kind of he's at his best as like a kind of somebody to kind of step in and almost be like the Greek chorus. Wizkid was a good choice because it felt plausible. Yeah. He's been like alienated from mutant kind before. He was in Avengers Academy and all of that. Yeah, he's he's spiky enough. He's kind of interesting enough. And also, like, he had become popular enough over mm. the run of Sword that it made sense that it would be... Like, because the thing that I was expecting is it wasn't going to be Mentallo because we don't care about him. Like, we wouldn't yeah. feel betrayed, you know what I mean? That was what's funny in the end. As soon as, as, soon as I knew that Mentallo wasn't going to betray Abigail, I knew that whoever was going to betray Abigail was going to be a fake out. Right. And then it became who will it hurt readers the most? Right. For a cliffhanger. That cliffhanger really hurt people's feelings. And also it gave me an opportunity to do what I wanted to in four, but I hadn't got my ducks in a row for because I hadn't got my sensitivity reader in place, which was to do a a whiskey issue. Mm-hmm. And I loved that issue. And I could do that in ten because by that time I managed to organize myself and more organize Abigail Dawson, who was absolutely wonderful as sensitivity reader. Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to get into Wiskatet and get into his relationship with Krakoa, his relationship with Resurrection, in light of his disability. The politics of disability and the Resurrection yeah. Protocol are very complicated. Yeah. What I think is really cool is that we're now seeing a diversity of opinion from the characters. Mm. Charles obviously wants to come back walking, but Wizkid and Karma might feel differently about... Wizkid doesn't want to die. Well, right, period. But that's what I'm saying is like, we've seen different attitudes towards it from different characters. Karma did want to resurrect, but Mm. wanted to resurrect without having her leg restored. Yeah, yeah. 
there's just different approaches by different characters. And I think that that's the best way to tackle it is to have, yeah. it, have it yeah. not be a monolithic experience, right? I thought that issue was great. WizKid was probably the wildest pull because he's never really had a spotlight since his introduction in Inferno. We never got around to how he came to be on the team. I feel like I kind of, I mean, I knew him from Inferno and I knew mm-hmm. him from that era. But he doesn't stick around in the 80s even. You no. Know? Like, I saw some takes on him as like an unapologetic disabled character. Mm-hmm. I went back and read. And I was like, oh, man, I would love to see what, you know, this character is like after how many years it's been in Marvel. As like a 20-year-old you know, or whatever. Uh, you know? Well, he's like he's like he's 18 or something. Or something. Right, yeah. yeah, 17, 18. I think 18 in two months was like where I landed. In oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Marvel time, it's so because he's like a similar age to like Artie and Leech. And but they got artificially that. aged in like a storyline. Oh, God, did they? Yeah. They're like Fantastic Four characters now. They're very... uh, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's like with Franklin and uh, and all of that stuff. It's like the ages of Marvel characters is such a weird bugbear at the best of times. My feeling is that Kitty Pride is now, let's say, 25. And Colossus is now like 30. So that's how much everybody's aged. That's kind of my... That- feels that feels right i think i i had a i had a i mean i have an argument with jordan every time well jordan thinks that cyclops is 28 which is insane i love him well he thinks he thinks spider-man is 28 so that fits here's the problem and i said this to jordan i said this to him directly cyclops says he's 30 in the 80s when kitty pride is 14 oh my god what (laughs) how did how is that possible he was like he was a high school kid in x-men one their college age by the time, like they aged pretty normally until about like 1980. I mean, my Marvel time is 15 years. That's my that's my thing. That's my personal thing. Marvel time is 15 years. Now, how those 15 years distribute? Because the X Men graduate because different characters age differently, right? Like, yeah, but they all age at the same time. I mean, but they can't because Kitty has aged at least 10 years, and other characters haven't. You know what I mean? That's it's it's. It's madness, but like... It's crazy. But I'm just saying, when Cyclops confronts Corsair, he says the plane crashed 20 years ago, and we know that he was 10 when the plane crashed. So I'm just putting that out there. We also know that Jean was 26 when she died in Dark Phoenix Saga, because it's on her gravestone. I would... I I feel like we've got to... There's got to be a website somewhere that just <laughs> notes all of this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I'm and like sure. just notes how old everyone is when when like, they say whenever they meant whenever they say their own age because mm-hmm. like we know we know Peter Parker became Spider Man and Hank turned thirty in the early nineties. He had a thirtieth birthday party. Hank carries himself like a fifty year old. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I think they should all be in their forties, but that's I mean, Tony know. Tony Stark is forty if he's that. So is Carol that's, Danvers. That's my help. I really do think that a lot of these She's got that energy. She's got that energy. Yeah. Well, and Emma is absolutely 40, but we don't have to... We don't have to... Spider-Man became Spider-Man. According to Mark Miller, Spider-Man became Spider-Man when he was 15 years old. He's 30 now. If it's been 15 years in the modern universe, he's 30. He's 30 now. But I think he was 30 in the 90s when he was, ma- when he was married to Mary Jane. I mean, if we're going by... They were doing the 30-something vibe in those stories, you know? Spider-Man, Spider-Man and Mary Jane. That's so, if we want to talk about uncomfortably sexual, 
Uh, I was very comfortable with it. I <laughs> I found it on. It was like the uncanny valley. It was like too real. How much sex they were having? No, no, no. It was it was the reverse. It was like the long one, man. It was like two weird virtual blobs like squishing their faces together. Oh, really? I in the '90s stuff, I thought that they. It were might very, be because like... I don't. I don't know. I just thought it was like this weird sort of what an alien like thing. Oh, I see. Chain smoking, Mary Jane era to me was like a very horny comic. I mean, it was very horny, but it was like the horniness of someone who didn't know what sex was. Oh, well, sure. I mean, but that's like 90s comics generally, right? It's a very like teenage perspective. That's what I mean by the uncanny valley. It's like the Oglaf where the shape change (laughs) kind of work out how how humans do it. I love Oglaf. Oh, Oglaf is wonderful. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean. To <laughs> no, get you know what? Uh, with that, I think. Played about sex life. We'll never, we'll never get to Magneto. Magneto was cruel. That's all I have to say about that. Magneto was wonderful. We need to, we need to. This yeah, we got to. be like five fucking questions. hours, but we got to ask some questions. We got to answer some questions, but like, what do you want to say about Magneto? Go talk about Magneto. Uh, I, I have nothing to say about Magneto. But he's amazingly cool. He's the greatest, and I, I will be a Magneto stan until the day I die. Magneto was right, and is, and remains right. And, you know, I can well believe that that was on all the time in those Grand Morrison comics where he's an old fart. You know, yeah, no, that was on. Magneto's, Magneto's <laughs> super hip. He's down with the kids. I've said that I love Morrison's whole story, but I do think that if Magneto was ever to be used again, that retcon was necessary. So, mm. you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a great ending for Magneto. But yeah, but it's an end. In a world where you don't want Magneto to end. Exactly. Then you have to take that back. You gotta, yeah. 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 That is a problem that I think Grant runs into a lot is that they will write something that is a perfect capstone on a character. And then it's like, unfortunately, Grant, this will never end. Like we don't, we're not allowed to have endings in this genre. I mean, I feel like, I feel like that's what the end of their, uh, Run yeah. Was, yeah, was about was like, oh god, no, Batman is trapped forever. In this. Yeah, Batman can't leave. Yeah, and I mean, it's also the end of what Scott Snyder's Batman run was about, where you've got Batman in that lovely white costume going like, I'm happy, and it's like, no, no, Batman, not for you long. Be happy. You're not yeah. allowed to be happy because then there's no then there's no story. Yeah, has well, there been a Batman run that hasn't ended that way in like the past <laughs> ten years? <laughs> Not that I could think of. Man. How does Tom King's end? I didn't get there. I feel like it's similar, but like, um, I think, I think the, because um, I haven't got to the end of Batman Catwoman yet. I mm. need to, because comicsology happened. Right. <laughs> and I was getting it, I was getting it religiously. And then the entire meaning of buying comics digitally became how. We should get to the questions because I'm keeping you. This is your entire Saturday, right? <laughs> this is going to be like the 12 hour podcast. I do want to break the record. Well, no, see, I'm somewhat committed to the Candy Southern episode remaining the longest episode of this podcast. Oh, how long is that? It's four and a half. Okay, what are we on now? Um, we're about three and a half right now, so we'll see. It's not gonna, it's not gonna take an hour, not for Abigail Brands. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll invent new time to keep Candace Southern's record. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll make it. We'll make it work. We'll I be just, like, you know. oh, it's it's four hours and a spare hour. 
And the second longest, which is one minute shorter than Candy, because I made sure, is the Celine episode. Those two are sort of the magnum opus. We'll we'll turn into we'll when we get within ten minutes we'll turn into exit words and you can suddenly there along, you go we'll, we'll the, be the like ticking timer shout yeah. out to exit words love those yeah folks love Ash Sam Guido writes hello Connor and Al there are so many questions I could ask about Abigail Brand because of Seward and now X Men Red she's quickly become a very fascinating character to me I was really struck when Al compared Brand's philosophy to Carl Rove's in an interview saying that Brand can find a way to justify all her decisions even if it means creating new realities. We're already seeing really clear examples of that in Red, like in issue two, when Brand manufactured an attack in an attempt to justify her new X-Men team. How did you decide to take Brand's philosophy in this direction? Was it something you felt was already there in her previous characterization, or a conscious decision on your part to make Brand's philosophy more defined? I'm so excited to hear your conversation. The Brand reveal at the end of Sword was so good, and the first few issues of X-Men Red have blown me away. Sam Guido. Uh, well, that's very kind of you, Sam. Um, well, it's a little bit of both. I feel like it was always there. Um, the Joss Whedon stuff. I mean, we've sort of we've sort of been over it that it kind of it's so informed that take by the by the times it was in, by the kind of the whole homeland security era. Yeah, it's kind of like we're now looking back on characters like her and like Nick Fury and thinking mm. about the things that I mean, I, I was looking back at um the X-Men stuff of the time and like Claremont in extreme having the extreme X-Men become like a police force is very, it's yeah. like very of its moment, you know? Yeah. Um, and it reads really weird now. And a couple of like f listeners in the discord were like, this is a really weird turn. I'm like, you have to remember that nine 11 just happened. A lot of the politics of those comics makes more sense when you think about yeah. it that way. But, you know, I think that the the choice with Abigail, it is based in the previous characterization, but it definitely, I mean, like you said, you pitched a heel turn. Like, you definitely were interested in Yeah, I mean, I think the moment, the moment when I knew it for sure, because she was always going to be shady, but the moment when I knew for sure was that conversation in five mm -hmm. between her and Magneto. Yeah. Because, like, I, I remember, like, looking at that and going, like, yeah, no. Magneto's right. Because he's warning her and Magneto's right. And here's yeah. the thing, he's warning her and he doesn't even realize that she's already yeah. gone. You know? I was like, what if, you know, what if it's too late? Yeah. That kind of came together the way it did was A, because of the choice of artist um, in that, you know, I was working, I've worked with Valerio on Empire. We had a, we had a wonderful He's one of my favorites working at the moment. He's so good. Yeah, can't forget my on colors. I actually was going to say the jam issue that you did. I forgot that there were multiple artists when I was reading it because mm. Marte's colors were so consistent and so distinctive that it really just felt like a, a seamless narrative. Valeria was just both of them. I mean, Mar Marte color wise, just absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. Valeria, the whole time, you know, design, um, everything. His design, his Hellfire Club designs, mm -hmm. I didn't put any, um, no input from me at all. He just like intuited it. Uh, so Whisker. Right. That's slightly the kind of non-binary edge. For Whisker, though, that was like, that was, you know, all Valeria. I didn't uh, specify that at all, but it's fantastic. That was why kind of issue five uh, was called Jello mm -hmm. and was like, almost like as a kind of, 
like a homage and a kind of yeah. Also, because I've been watching like a lot of Dallas. <laughs> So it became about the topic of murder. For listeners, Google that. If you don't know what a giallo is, G-I-A-L-L-O. It's a genre of Italian film that is yeah. a lot of fun. When Valerio heard I was calling it that, he was like, oh, I'll do the cover. As the cover is so good. As an Italian crime novel, which yeah. is where the term comes from. Right. That they all have yellow covers. Mm-hmm. And also yellow is Cortez's cover. Yep. Uh, Cortez's color, you know, he, he says it's gold, but it's not. He is supposed to be a ginger, though. I will. I will say. I. I he's fallen victim in sword to the, the strawberry blonde curse that seems to happen to all the redheads. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm not. I'm just. It's like Banshee, Dazzler, Amanda Sefton. They all just get blonder and blonder and blonder. It's that's like true. That's that's the the true meaning of yellow. It's like it's yeah. what's happening to his hair. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no. This was so. It was a lot of. Uh, that got us to that moment in that it was an issue all about murder and all about what constitutes murder. It was directed by Cortez and, you know, the fact that he was there at all was like Jonathan's suggestion. So all this, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a very sort of organic, um, almost synchronistic method by which all of this stuff comes to, comes about and comes to pass. And so we end up with stuff like um, Brand making that heel turn. You know, if we if I'd had a different artist, if we hadn't had Cortez on the team, if that issue had gone in a different direction, if I'd decided to abandon the Star Club altogether, who's to say? But I feel like with her personality, it would have eventually gone that way. Yeah. But it might have taken a little longer. That makes sense. And that was the moment. That was... That was the moment when Magneto confronted her about the life she had taken. That was when I absolutely knew that was where it was going. Because there's nothing better than a warning that comes too late, right? Like, that's always yeah. a yeah. delicious thing to put in a story. I was just re-listening to the uh, bonus episode that Sarah Sentry and I did on Vicky Montesi and the Darkhold Redeemers because I put that out for Pride publicly. And there's a couple of those in that that are just so good where it's like letters that weren't delivered or like, oops, it's way too late now. <laughs> like I always, oh, I always enjoy those. One of my favorite types of novel is the epistolary novel. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of great ones where you, you get to see the letters kind of crossing and not not yeah not hit until it's too late yeah it's good stuff yeah carlos ramos writes hello mr ewing and connor i have three questions one how many war crimes will brand commit (laughs) i think there's a lot of those probably (laughs) two will we see magneto's best pal peeper in x-men red um that's that's uh i mean the war crimes one is yeah you know count yeah. Uh, like, see, I mean, see how many you can. Yeah. You can count kids. It's like spot the differences. It's like yeah. exactly. Um, Peepers is a weird one. I, I kind of, um, I'd love to have like all Peepers content all the time, but it's like <laughs> it's one of those things where, because um, I, I really like, I love that Magneto has a friend. Sure. Yeah, it's fun. Who isn't one of the A listers? Right. And like, um, and if you go back and read that Jack Kirby Captain America annual, Peepers gets to talk to Magneto in a way that Toad never could. Mm-hmm. It's like Peepers kind of like 
he's finishing like the peeper burner melter lifter whatever yeah. that whole team is is a weird little detour because like all of them except peeper are just dudes they're just there yeah they're just guys who are around for you know but like they're just like oh yeah magneto magneto said that he'd pay us like right. an amount of money <laughs> um or like yeah this i wasn't doing anything on saturday <laughs> and you know it's magneto what am i you know it's like you don't get the sense with them of like masterminds, you mm-hmm. know, that like this is somebody who Magneto kind of hooked up with in some way. I'd love to read, I'd love to read the Magneto meets mastermind that decides, yeah, this is somebody I want to hang around with <laughs> on a long term basis. Well, this is the problem with 60s Magneto, right? Is that 60s yeah. Magneto he's not making good decisions, he's, doesn't he's got scan. the same, he's got the same dealer, that yeah, exactly, uh, the connection. Now for a more serious question. Abigail yeah. seems like she's losing her touch for subtle manipulation and her understanding of people. She failed to grasp that Storm and Manifold would both respond so badly to her probing and snarky comments. Was it because she's unable to see the Araki as people, or was she not prepared to deal with that level of resistance from a Terran? I mean, definitely, I think she's got a lesser opinion of the Araki than, like, mm-hmm. most other people. Right. Um, so there is that. I feel like she's sort of maybe. She's definitely like overshooting her shot with some of these people. Yeah. Which is an interest. Is it because she got one over on Gyrick and she's feeling cocky, or like what is the? What do you think it is? I I I think it's almost a natural a natural progression. It's like we kind of. Once you start getting away with it, you think you can get away with anything. It's yeah, we like see a... this a little bit in the real world as well. We kind of see these people who sort of, um, you know, they, they kind of start to believe their own hype. They start mm-hmm. to, to huff their own thoughts. It's like, you know, it's this thing of like, oh, oh, I got away with this. And right. at a certain point, you start really believing that people are that stupid. I, I kind of feel like it's a natural for people in that sort of that near conservative that quite right wing mold that like the more they the more things go their way the more they start to believe that that's naturally how the world works mm-hmm. and you know it might be a might be a thing with sort of con artists as a whole they sort of lose their edge the more they just get away with stuff the more they kind of start pushing things a little further start sort of thinking of people a little less like i mean abigail really should have known that manifold wasn't right. gonna no and, and cable especially the fact that she thinks that she's selling cable because you know she she's sort of aware on one level that he's gonna be a problem but at the same time it's like she's riding high she's got everything she wants right it's it, it's all gone off without a hitch so it she's... might be and this is going to be me turning into the hype man for a sec. But it might be that now she thinks she's got away with so much that no matter what people think, the rest of the dominoes are going to topple from here. She's already won in her mind. Yeah, she might have got, and she might be right, she might have got to that point of no return where, right. like, all of the do- the rest of the dominoes are going to fall. You know, no matter what people find out or what people uncover, yeah, it's sort of like I dare you to come after me because it's too late. Maybe again, yeah. the idea that it's too late, you know. With my promoter's hat on, maybe she's right. Mm. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here on 
as public podcasts and say that Abigail Brands cannot win. We've kind of seen in the real world how Abigail Brand types do win. Oh, Abigail Brand types win all the time. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, don't don't count her out. No, I wouldn't. I think that would be a, yeah. a big mistake. Yeah. Particularly because people like that, when they're backed into a corner, are extremely dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, you know, we're kind of seeing the Prime Minister of... Craig yeah, back to notably, right now. Yes, we are. We're gonna sort of, we're gonna sort of see what that makes him do. He's already started throwing some shit at the wall, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, some of it'll stick. You know, like that is. I, I it... suspect it's gonna get worse before it gets better. But like, mm-hmm. Brand is kind of, I guess, of that type, maybe a little more uh, comfortable. The Carl Rove thing is more how she thinks, but there's also something very like yeah. Steve Bannon Trumpian about the way that she yeah. is comporting yeah. herself. A little bit. You know, not in affect, but just in the way that like once you have the power, yeah, you can just start breaking the rules in public. Yeah. And what if you have enough support behind you, then what's what is anybody gonna do about it? Like what are your enemies? I mean, when, do? when she says to the room, what if I did kill Henry? Right. And like nobody says anything. And nobody that's says anything. Of, it's like, that's okay. That's a telling well, moment. Yeah. Because, yeah, and it's like, partly that's a sort of sign of her power, but also it's sort of like, nobody likes Henry. Well, yeah, that's the thing is, it's like, that's not a victim anyone's going to mourn. Yeah. Right? And it's like the ones, the ones who kind of look the most like, oh, well, I don't like this, but it was Henry Perry. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, that's that's the closest anyone comes to sort of saying. Mm-hmm. Ruby Helms writes, Hello, Connor and Mr. Ewing. Long-time listener, first-time questioner here. First of all, I just wanted to thank you, Connor, for this show. It was a comforting companion for me throughout my whole first year of college, and I really appreciate it as a way to learn and grow, as I've also only semi-recently delved into the world of comics in general more deeply. But about my question, I don't want to be sappy for too long. I was just wondering about the situation with Abigail's powers. I recently found out through fan discussion that she's only used her actual mutant ability on panel, I believe, four or five times, one of those actually being written by Mr. Ewing himself during her confrontation with Carol at Billy and Teddy's proper wedding. I was wondering if you could touch on the significance of that at all. Her powers almost feel like this only for special occasions reference rather than a central part of her, and I've been wondering what that means for her as an individual and as a mutant. Also, since it's used so sparingly, I'd love to hear Mr. Ewing touch on his choice to use it at the wedding what made you want to pull that card out of the deck thank you for taking the time to read this and for all that you do ruby yeah because i was i was actually looking looking at how the kind of because we the first time we see her use it it's sort of like um she's in like an ice cave or like mm-hmm. an ice mound with with a beast she keeps herself and hank alive by like creating yeah, heat creates create heat but we don't actually see the hands we just sort of see Beast go, oh my, which is kind of like, I, I guess, is a sort of a hint of the sexy times to come. Mm-hmm. We don't see her use of that often. Um, I think the reason why I had her slap Carol with it was that I wanted that slap to hurt. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to hurt Carol Danvers, right? Yeah, like... I, wanted, I wanted it to be like an actual slap in the face. So I had to throw a little superpower on it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I think at the time, there's there's a kind of, I feel like we've built layers and layers and layers on top of that slap. 
as we've learned more and as I've learned more about like brand and kind of because you know I'm I'm like unpeeling the onion same as everybody else. Uh, I don't I don't come in with like you know a ten point plan for the next ten years. But at the time, I was kind of taking her at face value that like Carol had fucked up. It was kind of a moment of drama. But also, I kind of almost immediately, even as I was writing the script, kind of undercut it by having the crew going like, oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, drama at the wedding. That's a really good sign. And then, like, we kind of have that, okay, well, that's, that's her playing a game. And then that kind of became, over time, well, there's no part of her that's not playing a game. And it's almost like the mutant power is like, that's a true part of her. So she never shows up. I also think it's an interesting contrast between her and the Araki is that they define themselves by their weapons, right? Yeah. And she never uses hers. And yeah. it's not something that she particularly is interested in displaying or in using unless she's backed into a corner, basically. Yeah. And yet it's her name. That's kind of... Which is interesting, right? It's the name she shows the world. It's the name she chose, yeah, it's it's weird. There's so many layers. There's so many layers. And I think that partly is because as writers and, you know, as multiple writers, there's no one person who's defined Abigail. But, like, as writers, we're, we're discovering these characters, mm -hmm. even as we write them. Well, and it's also, like, a jam of its own kind, right? Because yeah, yeah. you're passing them around. So, yeah you know, you're building on what other writers have done and then someday someone else will be building on what you've done and that's sure. just how they evolve, right? Zach Wilson writes, Hi, Connor and Al. I'm so excited for this episode and to hear both of your takes on Abigail Brand. Thank you once again, Connor, for all your hard work in creating the podcast. Mr. Ewing, every issue of Sword was amazing and the first issue of X-Men Red was even better. I can't wait for issue two. I've had these, the questions have been open for a while. Okay. <laughs> I'm tempted to actually read a Hulk comic for the first time in my life after everything I've heard about Immortal Hulk. Brand is a character I've loved since her introduction, and what you've done with her just adds to that. There's still so much we don't know about her that you filled in a few holes. My question is about something else we don't know. Are you planning on revealing, or do you have any ideas about what her tattoos could mean? Are Grace and Anna girlfriends, sisters, friends, daughters, or maybe just some names she liked? It's something I've wondered about since she debuted in Astonishing, and I hope it'll come up eventually in red. Thanks for all your hard work, and I can't wait to see what you have in store for the X-Office, Storm, and Araco in the future. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I, well, I know I know for a fact that like Joss Whedon had ideas of what those tattoos meant, and you know he he's like not no longer an influence on the character. Yeah, it's not his. Did not, not reveal his, that, right? But like those tattoos kind of remain with her, and I kind of feel like if I don't have a sort of slam bang reason for them, it's best to leave a pin in the grenade kind of thing yeah i would agree i think that with certain things like that you don't want to answer the question unless you have a compelling reason to do so it's such a huge thing that she's got the tattoos of these two names on her shoulders and it's yeah. like very visible tattoos you know like that's not a subtle yeah. location and i mean it's it's almost like with every year that goes by that those aren't explained those get more important and interesting mm -hmm. i don't know if i've got an answer which is the honest truth because it's like 
my conception of brand is so tied up in this space real politic and mm-hmm. uh, the real politic of kind of the mutants that it, that's almost like again you know at one point I was going to get into parenting and I was going to talk about her, who her uh, dad was and who her mum was and you know I was thinking her mum would be like this sort of space hero that would make sense because again it's like yeah. why was her human mother in space why did she grow up yeah. in space there's lots of questions there there's a lot of stuff, but it's like I I kind of made the decision, and you know, and part of it is like a, a page count decision. Mm-hmm. Like you know, I have so many issues. I have so many pages per issue. I've got to get through. You know, there are questions that I I really need to deal with. Yeah, Teeny always says that it needs to demand the real estate because you only yeah. have so much real yeah. estate on the page. Yeah, I can, and, and it's like. Yeah, if there's ever a giant size out of the brands, then mm-hmm. I'll get into that. But it's like, if I'm not going to get into that, I don't want to sort of toss off a kind of, oh, she had parakeets. Right. <laughs> and that's what they were. They were par- no, they were no that's the thing is like, once something has been built up as a mystery, you want to have a good answer if you're going to answer yeah. it, right? And somebody in the future, like, you know, if, if not me, then the next person or the person after that or the person after that, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, somebody will have a kick-ass slam-bang explosion of a reason for those two tattoos. Until then, the best thing I can do is like leave that for them, for whoever that is. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I, I, I could, you know, I could take a shower tomorrow and just have it come to me in a vision, and then I will tell you what the tattoos are about, but as of this moment, I don't have it yet. Dean Coburn writes, Hello to Cerebro and very distinguished guest, Mr. Ewing. Have to get this question for my current favorite writer in comics who's writing one of my new favorite characters, Abigail Brand, who is literally girl-bossing too close to the sun. In interviews, you've discussed how Brand understands that she can remove Storm from positions of power if she can make Storm see herself as just a queen. When approaching the character, how do you think she goes about determining her enemy's weaknesses? And does she still believe in her missions being truly just? Also, given where her and a certain blue fuzzball war criminal have been, do you think she takes pride in the fact that he's clearly taking some cues from her? All the best, Dean Coburn. I mean, I think, well, first of all, thanks for the conversation, but um, I think she definitely, I know, I, I think she probably looks at Hank and sees, you know, a protege or a, a pupil of some kind. I mean, if, if only for the ego books of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of her, you know, does she see herself as still good? I think, yeah, I think she has to. I don't think that there will ever be a point where she doesn't see that because I think that's too. I think it's too important for her um, for her ego. Mm-hmm. She has to see herself as righteous. I think it's like you know, at no point do these people. Um, you know, by these people, I, I very much mean these sort of neoconservative, very, very heavily kind of, we must make these hard choices to, mm-hmm. to change the world, to kind of, you know, we've got to, we've got to do these things. And I don't think there's any point where, like, these people sort of, there's never the, the are we the baddies moment. That's why it's a comedy sketch, you know, because there's never that moment. It's like... And and that's true of so many. There's 
there's never be going to be a, a moment where like Richie Gervais looks at himself and says, "Oh man, you know, there's there's never going to be that time." There's, no, <laughs> it's it's not going to happen because like um, too much of the self esteem is built up in that is like tied up yeah. in the idea yeah. of yourself as like a important truth teller and yada yada. Even more the ability to question yourself in that manner is maybe the very jigsaw piece that somebody like Abigail Brand is lacking. Yeah. Well, it's, it's again, it, it's another way in which she and Moira are somewhat similar is the megalomania of being unable to think of yourself as wrong, you know? Yeah. It's like, I don't recall. And you know, I, in any of the comics I've read today, which was like the Joss Whedon starting X-Men run and a lot of what came immediately after that. I don't recall a point, even when everything was collapsed around her ears. Where she's like, wow, I made a mistake. <laughs> she said the words, I got it wrong. Other people call out her mistakes. Mm-hmm. One of her, her, she has a second in command that just like gets his head crushed. Yeah. Because of her mistake. I don't see on panel. And, you know, I'm willing, if you're going to tell me that it happened in like Secret Invasion Frontline or whatever. Um, but I don't see the moment on panel where she says anything close to like, oh, that guy knew who he is. He was my guy. He was, he had, and now he's dead. And I feel bad about that. She doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bring up that this was a black guy, but like, it's not a good look, Abigail, that you never <laughs> mentioned this man who died for you. Yeah. Yeah. On your say-so, who you apparently knew for years. You know who else that reminds me of is Saturnine in the more Captain Britain stuff. Her assistant is just absolutely murdered right in front of her, and she Mm. never mentions him again. And I think Mm. that's a really good characterization beat for any character when they don't care about things like that. Or if they do, they'll never tell you. She says a lot of things in those weird issues that were like, there's some lovely craft in those issues. Like there's a, there's a beat where you get three pages of like the big ship is getting fired upon and the little ship like bursts out of it. And like Abigail does this big speech about, oh yeah, that's the best ship in the line. It's amazing. It'll do, it'll do whatever you ask it to. It's an amazing ship. It's the greatest thing. And Beast responds with, well, that sounds great. Shouldn't we be on it? And then you turn the page and they're still on the ship that's exploding. <laughs> and that's a lovely moment. And it's a beautiful pace. Um, and it's a wonderful craft. And it almost, but not quite, disguises the fact that Abigail has sent a bunch of her own people off as bait yes. and a decoy to be captured and tortured, including this guy who was her second in command. Right. Uh, it's like, well, okay. So yeah, I, I forget what the flip of this question was. How does she see people's weaknesses? Yeah, how how does she like how yeah. does she assess people like when she thinks I need to make Storm see herself as just a queen? How did that occur to her as like a way to get Storm, you know? I mean, I assume she'd been sort of watching the person that Storm has been mm-hmm. the role that Storm has been playing. Yeah. In recent times, and then extrapolated that so it's not that she's seeing it's not the weaknesses she's seeing it's the strength that she's missing yeah the thing that i think is important about brand's 
treatment of Storm so far is that she doesn't know Storm. Yeah. And part of what I think the story is about, as I read it, is Storm asserting who she is. Yeah. Rather than the pedestal that she's been placed on by yeah. other characters or honestly by readership. That was that was part of the thinking behind getting her in back in the uh <laughs> I mean not back in the punk costume if this but is, in a know, in a something that costume. speaks to it. Yeah, yeah. like to that yeah. aesthetic. Harrison Fuller writes, hey, to the amazing Connor and illustrious guest, Al Ewing, would like to start by saying I have a northern Appalachian accent. That is a rough one, Harrison, and I am not going to attempt it. Connor, your podcast, the community you've helped create is great. I wouldn't have gotten into comics besides the odd Laura Kinney or Squirrel Girl series without you. Well, that's sweet. Thank you. Mr. Ewing, I'd like to say I love everything you write. Your Guardians run is a perfect series, and I will continue to recommend it to everyone I can. Now, on to the question. How bad do you think Bran's daddy issues are? In your Beast episode, it's mentioned that she's fine with dating him because he pretty much looks like her dad, but blue. Then in Sword, part of the reason she ended the Snark War was because of how traumatized Papa Brand was due to it. Finally, it's mentioned that despite this obvious not being the case, she believes Hank is still a good person despite everything he's done. How much do you think Bran's feelings for Beast are impacted by her relationship with her father? And how do you think it will compel her to act later on? Sorry for the long email and the Freudian question. Once again, I love everything both of y'all produced. Sincerely, Harrison Fuller. We've kind of been over... Yeah, but I, I think that... The weirdness. When you wanted to dig into her father do you see that as like i guess what's what's the, the point of curiosity for me is whether it's the idea of her father that she sort of employs as a rhetorical device or whether it's something that she is actually really passionate about or like what their relationship is you know i think it's i think the an interesting question that I haven't asked yet, but might be is like out of the two furry people in her life, is her father in terms of personality more like Lothi or more like Hank? Mm-hmm. Is he is he a con artist or was he a con artist or was he somebody you know was was he somebody who was just like sort of Jack Malad's kind of almost a gambit figure or kind of um, or was he somebody who would make terrible choices and then justify them you know was he somebody who spoke in a very um elevated uh, register a kind of elevated cadence um while doing you know terrible things because like you know hank has the elevated register right all he was missing was the terrible thing yeah <laughs> you know is that her dad? yeah we, we've not met her dad all i've all i've really got on my end is that he's probably a con artist like a brother you know mm -hmm. that's what i would assume yeah well and it makes sense that if you were going to have her mother be like a space hero it would be one of those like i could see it being like a batman and catwoman kind of thing you know yeah or or he'd, he'd be the, like the sidekick or the heavy bear or you know some kind of some kind of figure in her life but like we don't really know much about him or, I mean, I, I guess, I guess by saying, you know, that I, I see her mum as like the space hero. Yeah, like it could be a Han Solo and Chewbacca thing, you know, like on yeah, yeah, level. it could be. But I'm, I'm kind <laughs> of placing her dad in like the because 
generally when her and Hank are together, he's sort of in a subordinate role, even mm-hmm. even when she's fingering his eyesight. As the kids do. That's the um, he's in the clubs. Even then, but all through all through the kind of he's very much the sort of second in command. You know, he's he's the one who breaks the buffers. Right. And it's like I don't know, is that the role was her dad the sidekick? There's so much that you could extrapolate in so many different directions. It almost feels weird to start doing that because you're sort of starting to kind of pathologize this um mm-hmm. this fictional character but like yeah I, something is something is going on there and i feel like it's something that's been inherited from a particular period of the noughties where which is what we call the aughts here in america which the is aughts, the 2000s okay. no just people have asked no people have asked me what the aughts are because i say it a lot on the show and right I'm like, it's the it's the zero zeros guys. It's but in yeah, in the, England they call them the noughties. The noughties. Always, like, well, they were. We don't they say not for zero in America. Austin so Austin Powers inaugurated the noughties. Mm-hmm. He was he was he was a naughty man. Yeah. Um, no, but like the yeah back in back in the aughts, um, or the double O's, the James Bond years. Yeah, there was. I, I feel like there was a sort of moment that was maybe maybe akin to the, the horny Spider Man moment of the nineties. Um, but like there was there was sort of a moment for a second where this was seen as empowering that yes. like Agent Brand would be like kind of or rather I, let me let me rephrase that slightly. This was seen by a certain class of male writer yes. as empowering. As like she's in control of her sexuality. Yeah. Whereas now we kind of look over it again and go, she's just right there on the page saying, You look a lot like my dad. Let's fuck. Let's fuck. (laughs) It's okay. Okay. That's that's a thing that you have written. That's fine. That's going out with your name on it. That's okay. That's cool. You know, okay, it, was a, it, was a, it was a time yeah, it was, and place. It was yeah. a decade. It was a decade and remained. I don't feel that it's ended. I think uh, I think the Empire never ended. The Empire of Forniness never ended. <laughs> Michael Apgar writes, Hello, Connor. First, let me be the millionth person to thank you for this podcast and the amazing community you've nurtured around it. Guys, you're all being so nice this week. I'm... I appreciate that. Mr. Ewing, I'm a huge fan of your work. You made me a Guardians of the Galaxy reader for the first time in my life. And while I'm sad that run is over, I'm super excited to see what else you have in store. Abigail Brand strikes me as someone with a bit of a chip on her shoulder. She seems to constantly feel like she's the only one who fully understands how brilliant and powerful she is. So I was wondering how annoyed she must have been to watch Cable fanboy over Rocket Raccoon, like some sort of legendary strategist, when he's never given her any indication that history remembers her in such a manner. Looking forward to the episode. Thanks, Michael. I mean, I never, I never thought of that, but yeah, that must have been. <laughs> um, I'm intrigued by the fact that Cable, like, we know that Cable is aware of certain future, they, like, it's obviously he's from way far in the future, so only certain names have survived, right? But the fact that he doesn't know anything about Abigail, particularly, is interesting to me in terms of what we said about, like, I wouldn't count her out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she, because she's not... I mean, he knows who Mystique is because Mystique apparently went down in history as the great Judas, right? But, like, Abigail hasn't, you know? It's interesting. I mean, it's, 
it kind of it's almost as if uh, these people who want to make history are instead going to be buried by it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we'd we'd hope so. That's an optimistic reading. We would certainly hope so. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a fun question to kind of imagine her in that moment, like watching this exchange between you know the the greatest. This sort of this guy whose tagline is like, "Oh, he's the ultimate soldier. He's history's greatest soldier," and he's saluting a raccoon in a lounge suit. I mean, I, I basically wrote that because I I love Rocket Raccoon. I love him as a sort of Rat Pack guy, um, and I really like the idea of him as sort of anytime anytime there's a sort of comedy character or a joke character. I love making them very serious. Um, so with Rocket, I did a lot of ingredients. I did a lot of uh, in the Rocket mini series. I did a lot of time on his feelings, his emotions. It's kind of you know, I, I turn him into a noir character. Yeah, and you introduced Cordyceps Jones, which I think if yeah, yeah, that was... if X Men fans haven't read that, it might be a good thing to read with Jerry's plot ongoing with that character. But I mean, you know, we, me and Adam, we had fun with that character, Pepe. Ah, uh, <laughs> woof! Well, that just means like just... elevated, yeah, elevated, just to beyond. Uh, but like, um, yeah, no, that was a natural progression to kind of become, become the mushroom. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, and and with Guardians, my thing with Rock was like he's getting old. He's like he's the gunslinger. He's the lion in winter. He's sort of right. You know, he's 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 getting old. He's getting slow. He's sort of you know. One of these days, the new kid's going to ride into town. So, like, in that sense, putting him, making him the August general, you know, just having him sort of turn up and cable, like, salute him, it just just feels supernatural. But, like, yeah, Abigail watching that, the the idea that, like, because Abigail's, you know, he's trying to, she's trying to sort of manipulate cable up. The idea that cable doesn't know her that well. Mm-hmm. Has got to cut on some subliminal. I think it's level. probably going to bother stick. the shit out of her. That's got to stick. That's got to be like. <laughs> but on the other hand, there's definitely a part of her that would sort of take it as like, yes, I changed the universe and nobody ever knew it with me. Well, right. I mean, some like. It's almost the reverse savior. The, the martyr complex, the kind of yeah, thing of like. It, it's like it, it adds to her idea of herself as righteous, right? Mm. Like, I don't even get the credit. But that's fine. I'm saving the yeah. universe. Yeah, know? no, it's oh, <laughs> it it is. So that would be how she deal with it. I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Willow Callahan writes, Hi, Connor and vaunted Mr. Ewing. Sorry if this is too late. I just read X-Men Red 2. And God, I love my girl boss space criminal alien queen so much. I'm a longtime Abigail Stan. I love her moral ambiguity and her general not giving a fuckness. I personally love her because as an aromantic person myself, referring to Beast as her xenophiliac experimentation partner was an incredible mood. My main question is actually not about brand, but ties to my personal Zaladane. To appearance king, Lothithan Reaxiaxis, a.k.a. Abigail half-brother who is a fuzzy space outlaw. In Sword 10, Abby mentions that her home planet is called Axis, and in Sword Volume 1, Abigail always emphasizes that her brother's name is just Lothi. 
This question is probably sounding like word vomit to anyone who doesn't know this obscure character. So my real question is, is Bran's actual first name simply Abby, or is it some long alien language name starting with Abby and a bunch of consonants and then her and her brother's last name? Axis, cheers, Will. You already said yes. Yeah, Abby's Abby's got a similar. I assume it's there. Abby than reacts the axis. Yeah, it's it's either that or it's. I mean, hearing hearing like the just lovely thing, that's a huge dollop of evidence towards Abigail Fenriani axis. Mm-hmm. The other place I was going was counting the syllables and going like, okay, well, Lofi fan is so be. Uh, Abigail Rian Reaxis, all one word. Um, but either, yeah, it's going to be one of those. It's going to be yeah, words. If it's just something Lothi, like that. If it's just Lothi, then yeah, Abigail Fan Rian Reaxis. And then I assume that like the, the other parts after Lothi are like a clan name and then a planet or whatever, right? Like, I mean, it might be her parents' names might be hidden in there. It might be mm-hmm. like that's what I'm saying is like. Thanriax might be her father or like her father's family. And so then it would be like Lothi Thanriax. Reaxis. Reaxis is probably of Axis. It's probably so of Axis, right? What's what's Lothi? What's Lothi's full name? It's Lothi. It's Lothi Thanriax Eaxis. So I think Eaxis is probably of the planet Axis, right? Yeah. So, so what's that it Reax? Be, it's Thanriax. Thanriax. So I think Abigail Thanriaxiaxis would make sense. Yeah, I think um, in that case, Reaxis of Axis Thanri is probably another. So I, I guess her dad or her mum's name is Ax. Thanri is kind of born of. So to be Lothi born of Ax of Axis. That makes sense. So either her mum or her dad was. If it's her mum, then she must have saved that planet because sure, and they named it after. But it's, yeah. it's I would think it's probably her father because it's not a yeah. it's not a human naming scheme, right? Yeah, but then human naming scheme, you know, it's in Thor space, Odin's son. like who, right? It's exactly. not Thor. It's not Thor Gaia's son. It's Thor Odin's son. So you know, human naming schemes are like <laughs> patriarchal. Well, it's not Gaia's son at all anymore. But that's you know, the... yeah. I mean. <laughs> I'm not getting into. I'm not getting Let's, into. No, Thor. no, we're not. This no. ain't no this Thor is, podcast. This is not a Thor podcast. Yeah, I mean, the axe might be. Axis might be. Uh, no, we've said axis. So yeah, axis. and I guess the question is like, do we think that Abigail is her name, or is that like brand something? I mean, axe, up, like, axe Abby, might be like the star. Axe might be the sun. So it's like Lothi of the system axe and the planet axis. Yeah, that would make that would make sense too. But you know, it, it'll be something like that. You know, extrapolate, extrapolate yourself. You know, this is non. This is off the. Choose page. your own adventure. We're just. This is not canon. We're just thinking it out. You know, canon speculation. Casey Welsh writes, hello, Connor, and the incredible Al Ewing. First, I have to gush for a moment. Mr. Ewing, you're one of my all-time favorite comic writers, and I am so happy you're writing X-Men right now. To build on Connor's idea from previous episodes, I'd be the first in line to pre-order the Ewing and Ayala giant-sized phone book. I always said I would read, I would read Vita, write the phone book. My question is this, is Brand working with Orcus because Polaris keeps stealing her look? Abigail cuts her hair to differentiate, and Lorna has the audacity to start wearing sunglasses as part of her X-Men outfit. I wouldn't blame Brand for switching sides until Zaladane and Brand put Lorna in her place, make mine Cerebro, Casey Welsh. 
I mean, I'm, I'm going to say that's the reason. I'm going to say that's the straw that broke the camel's back. In the same, just like, God damn it. You know, for Magneto, it was it was like learning that his daughter had no X gene. For Brand, it was like born a steel in the look. It's you know they were yeah. equivalent things, right? Yeah. But yeah, no, I I, I think like <laughs> yeah, oh, it's just a joke, you know, who, it made me who knows who knows what yeah, the reason yeah. is for these people. Kim writes, hello, Cerebro. First of all, I want to thank our glorious host for the lovely pod and Mr. Ewing for writing this fantastic character and making her one of my all-time favorites in this franchise. On to my question. We all know Brand has the best taste in fashion in the Marvel Universe. If you have any other contenders, I'd be happy to hear it. But what kind of music does she listen to? Does she even listen to Earth music or her taste more obscure than that? Can't wait for the episode. Hope you're all doing well. And bye. Kim, last name withheld. That's a really good question. I can tell you which, because I did before I quit Spotify, um, which I have done uh, because I I do title now, which apparently pays the acts more. It pays them more, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's my and you know it's it's all streaming, but you know, yeah, it's a small thing, little thing. But anyway, I I'm no longer on Spotify, so I don't have any of my Spotify playlists. Um, but on the X Men Red playlist, which I used to hype the book back in the day. Uh, the track that was Abigail's track of that was Integral by the Petra Boys, mm. which is a very, a very naughty sort of track, a very kind sure of, is. very uh, <laughs> Homeland Security sort of track, <laughs> very much the Blair years. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want her to like the Petra Boys because I like the Petra Boys. Um, I think if she likes alien music, that's a really interesting road to go down you know what is what is the closest earth equivalent to alien music is it like um you know is it japanese noise core is it like uh hyper minimalist or is it like abba or you know something is it disco um roberto does want to does want to introduce araka to disco but they're um they're not, they're not from space. They're from like... Uh, I feel like time. if she listens to like Earth music, she's like into like the yeah, yeah, yeahs. I could see like that kind of like... And except that she's like, she doesn't get that Karen o would hate her. But like that's, mm. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. <laughs> what, would be, what would be the most... Who's like the opposite of Dolly Pod? Oh, Mumford and Sons. Oh my God. She'd be really into Mumford and Sons. Uh, Morrissey, she'd love Morrissey. Oh, <laughs> Abigail Brand knows Morrissey personally. They're like great friends. I bet. They're pen pals, yeah. They, yeah, yeah they write all you about the their thoughts on immigration. That. If you just, you know, so. Uh, no, I mean, the, the, this is the thing where we get back to like Karen's series because um, Abigail was very much kind of pro immigration. Like, obviously, she was up against Henry Garrick. So, like, mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I realize I have flip flop between Garrick and Garrick. Oh, I always say Guy Rick. Yeah, it's yeah. you know, I I'm I'm I change with the weather. But like <laughs> um yeah, no, she was very much and that's what I kind of mean by like that was sort of the peak of her rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And that she was very much, you know, on the side She was of, a hero in that book for yeah, sure. Yeah, on the side of right. On the side of yeah. like, like right. So yeah, so you know, I don't wanna say she'd be anti immigration. I think she'd want whatever was happening to be under her control. Well, she's against anything that she doesn't regulate. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I don't think she's sort of a pretty Patel figure. No. I think she's kind of um, But she's not happy about the Iraqi showing up. 
Like she's not. No. You know, there is a very like send them back where they came from vibe. And her kind of her sort of even then, you know, she was like the border control. She was mm-hmm. her whole deal was like, yeah, you know, aliens can live on Earth if we better them with a permit, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, if she kind of the Abigail brand of who who turned up in Astonishing X Men like seven or six or whatever to kind of justify the ongoing torture of Colossus would, you know, if somebody, it doesn't matter how nice the sort of the scrolls are who kind of turn up on earth without her knowledge. Right. That Abigail wants them gone. Wants them yes. gone. And like, mm-hmm. and she wants them punished also. Yeah. I, and the Abigail that, that Kieran sort of massaged into existence from that clay, maybe not, but yeah, I've kind of taken her back in the other direction. Yeah. You know, I've taken her back to her roots. Yeah, exactly. She's back. She's a little bit back to basics, but better yeah. than ever as a character, in my opinion. Back to where And I, I like Kieran's sword mini. I do. Oh, yeah. No, it's a great. It's a great. But I'm more interested in the character this way. It's very fun. Personally. Yeah. Zach Jenkins of Battle of the Atom writes, Connor and esteemed Al, Abigail Brand is a known freak. Even so, do you think she'd be chill with that time Hank fell in love with a house cat, or would that be a bridge too far for even her sensibilities? Do you think he ever even told her about it, or is that an L he's keeping buried forever? Bless Zachary. Do you know this story about Hank and the house cat? No, no, you are going to have to educate. In X-Men Unlimited 42, there is a story in which Hank finds a mutant cat lady in the woods and she's like dying or something she wants he wants to uh he's trying to help her and gene is able to determine by going into the cat lady's head telepathically and this is after hank has like fallen in love with her at first sight he's like she's like me this is cat hank era it's like this was during new x-men and gene is like hank this isn't a mutant human it's a mutant cat and it's dying, so that's why it came in from the woods. And <laughs> he's really embarrassed, and then the cat dies. I mean, and that's it. It's one of the most insane stories I've ever read in an X Men comic. Um, okay, the cat I, has boobs. It's like a very mutant cat. If it's like if it's if it's like a human, is it human shaped? It's human shaped, but it's uh, it's a cat. This story is. Does it talk? No. It just okay. makes like cat noises. It's it's a lot. It's a, we're, I'll, yeah. We're it's, a it's, step away from Cat Eye. Who I I was just you know Cat Eye is a human mutant who thinks she's a cat. This is an right. actual mutant cat. Because I was under the impression that Cat Eye was a cat. No, Cat Eye was raised by cats and so believes that she is one, but she's actually human. I mean, I feel like I feel like that distinction becomes very important when Hank McCoy is. Wants to 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 fuck you. Yeah, no, absolutely. But like... No, Hank McCoy was desperately erect for a literal cat because it looked like a lady with boobs. I I feel... I feel feel bad for Hank McCoy. I've been... I run a... (laughs) Do you know um, Travis Hedgecock? Yes. I I don't know personally, but like I know who that is. Like the the new X-Man, X-Hedgecock. Exegesis is that mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the the massive and one of the things that got into there, which had a 
profound effect when I read it was reconsidering the Hank McCoy, I think I might be game on, as like a, a cry for help, a call for help. Because obviously, you know, this was after I had quite recently exited the closet myself. But like, um, no, seeing that and just going like, oh, this kind of, to think that there is a part of Hank who would, who would desperately like, and I, I kind of hate that I'm, I'm reconsidering bringing this up in the context of him wanting to fuck a cat. <laughs> but like, um, but something about Hank kind of being unable to speak his true self, except in this sort of, no, I'm joking. I'm joking, I'm joking. Scott, it's a joke. It's a joke, Scott. Mm-hmm. What are you, not Scott? Scott. See, my thing on that is I don't want Hank and like Yeah, nobody nobody wants Hank. There are very few X-Men characters that I would not support a gay reveal on, and one of them is Hank McCoy. It's a no for me. I Yeah, it's in part because I actually for me, I, I see the pathos in that. I do. For me, first of all, I just think it's really funny. I think that whole subplot is funny. It's like a very classic Grant sense of humor yeah. kind of thing. But and I think it's funnier if Trish outs him and he's not actually gay. Like, that is mm. funnier to me. It's very Hank as we know Hank. Yes. I think it's part of, it's one of the moments that I think helped establish modern Hank's characterization mm. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think Hank is like Natasha Leone. Hank knows that gay men find him attractive. And... Natasha Leone said that like she wishes she was like even a little bisexual because she is so popular with women that she would be swimming in it. And she's like, unfortunately, I'm like desperately heterosexual. I think that that's part of it is like he feels so rejected by women that he's like, that'd be fun. I could go to the Eagle and they would love me there, you know, but it's like not, <laughs> it's not to be. Uh, is sort of that's kind of how I read it, and that that is some pathos there to me also. Is like it's it comes out of a real shame that he. I mean, it's the the key Hank thing I always think about in Morrison is actually when he says to Gene, "You knew me when I could play guitar." Yeah, yeah. And the way that his continued like evolution slash devolution into like an atavistic animal is robbing him of his ability to connect with human beings. And like, part of that is Trish saying, I'm not comfortable having sex with you because you're a cat. I mean, in a way, in a way, Hank kind of has developed into a beast, but in yeah. on a different axis from like what- In a moral sense, right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is- He got yeah, his fingers back, but his he's become- Yeah, what we're, what we're talking about here, it's, it's almost a beat that- only works for the Hank that was at the time. Mm -hmm. In that now, you know, like you say, he's just so far gone. He's so far away from anyone you would want in your space or in, you know, right. interacting with you on any level. <laughs> but like, yeah, you know, it's it's almost, ugh, no, God, ugh, stay over there. Well, my thing is also like we only ever get like a handful of canonically queer characters, and I just simply don't want to waste one of them on Hank. <laughs> so in a, I'm in all a for gay villains. World. I'm all for gay villains. I just in don't a want that world, one. He'd be like, 
you know? He'd be like one of the last in the door. In a perfect world, everyone on Krakoa is canonically queer except Dazzler because I think it's very important that Dazzler is straight. Right. She just loves the gays so much. She's Kylie Minogue. Like, she's in it, but... Not but Beast, Beast is like at the back of the queue. Like he, the I would have him at the end of the queue, truly. Like, talk about a resurrection protocol. Yeah. Like, we need a homosexuality yeah. protocol. Well, that sounds terrible. We should not have a homosexuality <laughs> protocol. Um, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Justin Park writes, Dear Connor and Mr. Al Ewing, it's hard to overstate how much I love your work, Al, and how much it's contributed to my current love of comics. That said, I think the piece of your writing that hit me the hardest was your coming out post. Thank you for writing and sharing that. It meant so much to me as a bisexual man to know that a writer I admired on this level had felt so many of the things that I had. As you've written some of the finest ensemble cast books in Living Memory, I'd love to hear more about your process in choosing characters and putting the casts together. Do you go out of your way to include characters you feel have been underserved or haven't had a prolific publication history? Or is it more that you have a steel trap continuity memory and it's so powerful that all of these characters already feel like prominent and well-known characters to you? How do you balance more famous characters like Storm or Magneto with these obscure characters or decide when it's time to bring in entirely new creations who, by the way, are all already iconic? Hashtag Stan, Kobach never held. In particular, as someone with a vested interest in Sunfire, Justin was my Sunfire episode guest. It's a good episode. I have to say, I absolutely loved the way you wrote Shiro in your sword issues. The mixture of cocky, high-powered feet moments and hilarious flop moments was pitch perfect. And ever since he set up shop on Mars, I've been excited for the possibility of you writing him again. I'd love to hear more about why you initially brought him into that sword arc and what it was like writing him. Thank you both for all that you do, Justin. So how do you build the cast for your books? Not specifically in the case of this one, but like, how do you go about, you know, I was thinking about Ultimates also. Is like, Yeah, really- I mean, Ultimates... Because I have to say, Monica Rambo is my favorite Avenger, and I never felt like she got her due after Stern, and you really brought her back in a big way, and I appreciate that. That's another example of a character you kind of, I grew up with, and then it was weird. It was like a a kind of, the sort of ballast, you know, Will Will and America Mm -hmm. come in. Avengers just dropped entirely off the radar of mm. like stuff that you would find during the arc where the super adaptoid kind of gets all the robot villains together, uh, which I think was one of Roger Stern's last ones before, uh, or maybe, maybe the very last before he got, you know, unceremoniously ejected. Yeah. So I missed like the fall of Monica. I only remember Monica as like an absolute badass who led the Avengers. And then I kind of, drifted back into the Avengers later and she was just gone and it was like what happened Greenwald got rid of her very unceremoniously yeah that was I mean I ended up reading that like a long time later and it was like oh man it's, yeah, she was not well served at all so that's kind of where a lot of my love for Monica comes from it's like in the largest sense of actually answering the question in terms of like the how I pick the teams if it was up to me I would probably never put an anus on a book ever <laughs> I think like they're, they're kind of all A-listers, but it's like I'm I'm aware and I've been I've been given like over and over again that like you've got to have more of the marquee, you know. Right. You've got to have more of the big names, the marquee names. You've got to, you know, you've got to have more of those. Beyond that, I try to have a decent balance in all senses. Like I I try not to have a kind of sixties type team where it's like six white dudes and, and a woman who makes them say a woman yeah who makes who does the secretary you know whatever was happening with the last 
So, you know, obviously that is, that is the thing to avoid at all costs. And I mean, the Ultimates kind of came out of a weird mix of like synchronicity and, and that desire because like at one point, I remember the Ultimates, I wanted Odin on the team. Mm. It was like the ultimate white man. But like it became very clear that Jason had some plans for Odin and it wouldn't be a great fit. It'd be that thing where like I've got to dance between too many raindrops. Right. And also it'd get in it'd get in just uh, get in Jason's way as well, you know. And it was just like, okay, well, and that's why Galactus ended up being such a big part of the book, was he was kind of the replacement for Odin. Interesting. But it's it's all it's all stuff like that. It's all these little synchronicities and kind of um, you know teams sort of evolve. As I was talking about the sword team earlier, there's definitely a little a little counter in my head that's kind of like, okay, well we got to make sure it's it's well balanced and it's got a bunch of people in it. But also it'll be stuff like, oh hey, Fabian Cordes, he looks interesting, or you know, Wizkid. Wow, they seem cool, and then they come. A lot of it was like, because I came up with the idea of the sort of the rainbow of divisions, mm-hmm. and then it was sort of like, well, who fits in that? And I think that was where the last, the final slots went. Was like, um, it was fun to see some characters like Risque and like other people yeah. who had just not really ever been used much. You know, well, I feel I feel bad though because I only really used that once. And, you know, I put this gigantic org chart in there with like 100 <laughs> names on it. I love that chart. I ended up pretty much concentrating on the division heads. And even then, you know, Mantula didn't get much to do because nobody cares about Mantula. The funniest thing about that chart was that around the same time, Skids appeared in Jordan Bloom and Patton Oswalt's Modoc Head Games. And Gwenpool makes a joke. Like, oh, Skids, your stock's really rising. Maybe someday soon Hickman will put you on a chart. And then right around the same time, the sword org chart dropped with Skids. And that's as the only that's the only mention of Skids in the entire thing. Originally, originally, I was thinking like Skids would be in Armour's place. I would have liked that, but I, I do still think that it, it should have been Unashone because we've seen her yeah, do her I, I in space. And this is where my this is where my this is where your nineties stuff, yeah. No, my nineties black hole gets yeah, in the way it happens. That. No, but I, I love I love skids. I'd love to see skids doing something at some point. It'd be nice, but it was like I would, I think in the end I was like, well, I'd rather see armor. Armor's more visually interesting to draw and also She's a more popular character. She just is. Yeah, and you know. she's close to the earth. And also, I had this—I had this idea, which I think went on the chart, and I never ended up doing anything with it. Was that she'd be sort of in the diplomatic side of things? Yeah, that she was working with Frenzy. So she'd be working like under Frenzy and doing like diplomatic stuff. And we ended up—we ended up not doing much of the diplomatic stuff at all, except for that gigantic fight with the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, getting their asses handed. That was delightful. Which was fun. And then Sunfire. What were your thoughts on Sunfire? Why did you? Oh, Sunfire. Sunfire. Yes, his his presence was largely dictated by the nature of it. You know, we were dealing with symbiotes. We needed. I hadn't kept up on like the weaknesses of symbiotes. Mm-hmm. As far as I knew, they were still very fire. You know, they were still very flammable. So I brought Sunfire in to kind of. I thought he'd be a good character to kind of take on a symbiote dragon for like. Yeah. And, you know, this was like one of the same dragons that I put the entire Guardians, including, you know, Sun God Peter Quill up against. Right. So, you know, I knew they were tough. 
And I thought, like, okay, well, Sunfire's going to get a good showing, but at the same time, he's going to get wrecked. I loved when he got all juiced up and was like, yes! It was very Hank uh, on Coke. Yeah. In the, in the <laughs> now we know who the dealer is. Cortez is the whole dealer, time. Literally, yeah. he, he's the connection. Yeah, so it was it was kind of, it was one of those very practical choices. Mm-hmm. I didn't know at the time that Sunfire was going to be an X-Man, I don't think. Because that was a post-Telfire Gala thing. And this was very much pre. So yeah, basically, that was the thinking with with Sunfire. Uh, I do really like where Jerry's kind of taken Sunfire. Yeah, I do too. There's a thing he did that was kind of interesting in one of these sort of join the dots things. Because Jerry had a thing where he sort of shows up on Arako and like fights and kills a bunch of people for the land he builds his house on. Mm-hmm. And that that was one of the things that sort of got me thinking in terms of like how does land work? So that was sort of the um, one of the inspirations for like the Araka philosophy of land, which is that nobody owns it. And if you say you do, that's a problem. Mm. So looking at it through that lens, you know, Sunfire has not been a great guy in that instance. <laughs> but on the other hand, he did tell them to yield and they didn't so right. you know he's not strictly at fault there by Arako's own laws and it's like you know at a certain point it's like with Bailong you know at a certain point people stop coming it's like right. okay fine it's yours fine you want to live fine 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 you want to be a dick about it be a dick about it Magneto's got big cred for like building a giant palace for like whoever wants to come by oh for sure yeah well I hope we see more of Sunfire in X and Red I do like his Mars journey and uh, yeah I'm to see where it goes I think there's definitely there's definitely plans to kind of map that story out and keep it going and, you nice. know see what happens there so Last question, but she sent like three, so it's like last questions. <laughs> uh, Riley Daniels okay. writes, Greetings, almost esteemed guest Al Ewing, and also to our most gloried of hosts, and a knowing nod to the constellation of listeners. I've been a fan of yours, Al, since the days of Zombo and your interview as, quote, Al Ewing. Oh, wow. So it was a delight when I got back into reading comics, thanks in large part to this podcast, to see you doing some delightful things at the Big Two. And to see that there is a through line from queer transporter clones to the far more grounded Charlene McGowan in Immortal Hulk was a delight. As a trans woman, I don't often see myself reflected in mass media. But as this isn't a 2000 AD or Hulk podcast, I'll keep it moving along to what we've all been waiting for. I have multiple questions. One, if you were to write a Claremontian phonetic accent, what hyperlocal accent from these Anglo-Celtic Isles would you pick? I've done it. I Mr. Horse in Valkyrie is it's not it's not my accent because I'm from the South originally, but it's it's a Yorkshire accent. So it's where I live now. Riley's Brummy. Okay. It's <laughs> it's kind of based on it's based a little bit on Sean Bean. I kind of I go back mm-hmm. to, to Sean Bean on it quite a lot. I had to I had to write a, a document which I think was printed in the back matter of one of the issues of like so I knew I was handing it on. I knew I knew I wasn't going to be on Valkyrie forever. But I was like, here is how you do. Yeah, a very stereotypical Northern UK accent. I guess I guess I've done that. Like, um, I mean, you mentioned Zombo. Um, I always thought of that as like West Country, but like the most Clementian. I was like a good Scottish accent. I had a go with Proteus mm-hmm. at. Doing wine more Scots. song that was so cute yeah 
Yeah, I I had a go with Proteus at doing some kind of not Clementian, but more sort of Morrisonian. Yeah. But it's like the film that kind of I try to avoid it generally because it's sort of you know, when Moira talks, generally it's not super Scottish. Well, I mean, Claremont did it in like a very, yeah. uh, in a very phonetic, famous way. But it, no, in in certainly Hickman's hasn't been. There's a point you can track when I stop using ah instead of I for cannibal. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. can definitely, you can definitely see a moment when I decide. Okay, we're not doing that anymore. See, I love them. I love a, I love a phonetic accent. I'm a sucker for it. A can. Rain screaming that she didn't can as always. I didn't can. I forgot about the 2008 like Midden Face McNulty um, was the great Scottish character. He just talked in phonetic Scots, and that was that was John Wagner, but a man, a man of Scotland. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's an absolutely. I, I feel like that's where you know the Scottish accent. That's definitely where I got most of the produce stuff. Two, every war criminal has a weird project they do on the side, whether it's write erotic novels, be obsessed with westerns, or what have you. So what's Bran's weird project when she's not busy committing space crimes against sentience? I really want to get into Bran's erotic novels. I imagine, <laughs> can you imagine how fucked up those are? <laughs> Socketing. So much socketing. I think Bran goes on a website devoted to ice sockets and does, like... It's called Only Sockets, and you can pay to. It's called Socket to content. Me. It's called oh SocketToMe.com. <laughs> she goes on and she does like Paddington Bear slash Spotty. <laughs> With Super eye Ted. sockets? <laughs> Socket fiction. No, no, she does Super Ted and Paddington Bear. And Super Ted's lost one of his eyes because he's just a toy. And. Paddington Bear pokes his real bear finger in the ice. Like, this is all coming to me like right off the dome. Wow. I have not thought about this at length. This is creativity, is what this, this yeah, is. Yeah, this is. This is a master know, was, at work. Is what it this is. is my improv training. I had improv training. This, <laughs> this is where it went. Three, you had a long career in comics writing for everything from fanzines on up. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts you'd like to share on what the different formats are like and how you shape stories to fit different pacing requirements. Is there a format you prefer or have a special fondness for? And are there any you haven't fully explored that you'd like to do? Ooh, I've got I've got very, very used to the American 20-page format now. I mean, the thing you could never do... I mean, I talked, I talked right at the start of all this about like 2008, you know, six-pager. Mm-hmm. But the thing you could never do with that, and I've seen it done, but like the cost, you know, at what cost, et cetera, was like you could never have a splash page mm, ending. Yeah, you, you don't have space. I mean, I have just, I, I live and die on the splash page ending. Um, I love a splash page. I mean, it's just, it's, it's very Morrisonian. It's absolutely taken. Looking over the old Joss Whedon stuff, you know, another another user of the splash page ending. It's like it's such a good way to end the comic. But if it's six pages, there's absolutely no way. And you can't, it. right? It's like that's a sixth of your Yeah. I've done it maybe once. I saw there was one person and this was I forget who wrote it, but it was John Davis Hunt who drew it. And this was somebody with like six pages mm-hmm. and they had a double page spread, single image. And I remember like reading that issue of 2008 and going, oh my God, just the audacity of that. Just like, oh my God. Because that's like 
a third of the real estate on one image. And like, I could never, I could never have, have like done that. So, you know, that, that's the limits. That's my limit with regard to, I guess I do like uh, the American comments better because, you know, you can do the double pitch spreads without feeling like, oh my God, what have I done? Right. In terms of something, something I really love is cheese around adventure stuff. Oh, fun. That's always difficult, but it's always good. In terms of what I'd really like to get into, I've had a lot of fun with the vertical format and the the kind of swipey mm-hmm. the infinity transition thing. format. Yeah, the infinity comments. Those those are interesting. I did I did a thing. I don't know if it's seen print yet. I don't believe so. Yeah, there's a there's a there was an FCBD one which I did, which was sort of strange tales. But there's a second issue of that that I did, and that's got a bit with a moving car that you kind of, as you scroll, the car moves up the screen. And that was that took a lot to get right because it's like, no, you don't have to, you don't have to kind of draw the car moving; it will move. Yeah, it, it's moving because the person's you, moving their thumb as you, know? you scroll. Yeah, it's in terms of in terms of comic formats, I feel like I've done most of them, but it's really the interactive ones that I. I love and I really want to get into more of. So that would be it. That would be be very cool. Yeah. Riley finishes with once more, I'm delighted to have read your work and look forward to reading whatever you may release in the future. As much as I'm delighted in having the Cerebro community to be able to discuss it with. So thank you, Connor, once more for providing that space for us all, Riley. Well, thank you, Riley. That's very sweet. And you are always a delight in the discord server. Al, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to say about Abigail brand? I feel like we've. I feel like I we've, think said we've it all. done it. Yeah, At I feel length. like we really. Um, how are we? How are we doing? We are about to hit the five-hour mark, but I'm going to edit. I mean, I edit this, so it's not going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you I mean, know, there's, there's, there's places where we went to get drinks. There's places where we, yes, where we we took it offline. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? Yeah, I mean, I am generally unavailable at Twitter on <laughs> Al underscore Ewing. If you ask me any questions at all, I will likely not answer them, especially if they're questions about which of the cosmic powers could beat which of the other cosmic powers <laughs> in a fight. I'll also add who is the strongest Hulk. Any question about that whole business, yeah, no, I'll, I'll ignore <laughs> I hate Twitter and all who say it. Uh, so yeah, don't find me at Alan I'm I'm on Tumblr. Well, I used to be on Tumblr. I'm at sort of I think Al Ewing or one word dot Tumblr, but that's at this point it's like a meager collection of music videos. That's about it. I've not posted any music video there in like forever. I probably won't again. So you won't find me there either. You just won't find me at all. <laughs> I'm just not available. Just buy the man's comic books. They're good. I'm like Steve Ditko. I've, oh yeah, you are just I've disappearing the into the into the yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just be in my office, you know, <laughs> getting increasingly into objectivism. Yeah, don't do that part. 
for sure. That would be that would be tragic. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash Cerebrocast, you can get exclusive access to the Secret Files bonus episodes I just launched the Cerebro Claremont Marathon, which is a new weekly series on the Patreon. Every week I am reading one issue of the Claremont Run with my commentary and funny voices and et cetera, et cetera. We just did Giant Size X-Men number one last week and X-Men 94 should be out soon. So there's never been a better time to jump on the Patreon if you have been thinking about it and haven't done it yet some other fun bonus content coming down the pipe you also get an ad-free version of every episode as soon as it goes up your support means the world to me and to my wallet so thank you next week's episode will feature jordan block will join me to talk about rita wayward the sinister spiral then scholar rebecca galt on rain sinclair Anthony Oliveira returns to the pod to talk about Sinjin Allardyce, the fiery pyro, and then even more fire as Alex Abad Santos returns to the show to talk about magma. Questions are still open for pyro and magma. They are closed for Wolfsbane and Spiral. You can email cerebrocast at gmail.com with your questions. Thank you, as always, for your support. And until next time, everybody, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 